Welcome to Adventure Rider Radio Raw, a roundtable-style spin-off from Adventure Rider Radio that we do each month about motorcycle travel. And on this episode of Raw, episode 79, some crazy camping gear that we're going to chat about. And we're also going to talk about what is so amazing or what was shocking, surprising, notable in South America for those traveling in South America. This is episode 79. But before we get going today, I want to give a shout out to some people who've helped the show incredibly this past uh, month with support of $50 or more. Anytime you give $10 or more for, for Adventure Eye Radio Raw, you get a sticker sent at you. And I think $50 or more, you get a shout out like I'm doing right now. Drop our website, adventureriderradio.com and click on support. It's built on a model of some advertising and then listener support. We need you. Anyway, so this is the people that really helped out this month. Anthony Coons, Edward Fleming, Kevin Stratton, Simon Bateman, Eddie Gilling, and John Sirabassi from Emmaus Moto Tours. Thank you all so much. Anyway, like I said, drop by the uh, the website, AdventureRiderRadio.com, and click on support. Now, just in case we're always a new discovery for you, our, our flagship show is called Adventure Rider Radio. It comes out every week. Again, everywhere you, you find podcasts, but it is at our website, AdventureRiderRadio.com. Now, here we go. Adventure Rider Radio Raw for August 2022. Oh yeah, it's me, right? I got it. <laughs> Recorded live from the Canoe West Media Studio deep in the boreal forests of North America, this is Adventure Rider Radio Raw, roundtable discussions about motorcycles, travel, and anything else that crosses our mind, completely unscripted, raw, and personal. My name is Jim Martin, and today the virtual roundtable afforded through the magic of the internet. I'm joined by my regular esteemed Overland co-host. I'm going to start with Sam Manicom in the UK. Hello, Sam, and, and are you getting ready to jump on a plane soon? Hi, everybody. Um... <laughs> I, I'm like a big kid at Christmas. I tell you, I'm I'm getting so buzzed about um, heading off, and it is happening soon. By the time this show comes out, I will probably be in the US, which would be absolutely fantastic. Mm. But you know, I before we go any further, I do need to give my usual show weather forecast for what's happening in Exeter because I had a little laugh to myself after we recorded the last show because I suddenly realised, Sam, virtually every show you're telling everybody what the weather's like, so I'm sure that everybody's expecting me to do it. And actually, um, Shirley and Brian have just been laughing at me because we've had um, some record temperatures in the UK. We've been 40.3 degrees Celsius. I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit, actually, but let's put it this way. It's relatively toasty where nobody has air conditioning systems or only the um, the well-off have air conditioning systems. 40.3. That's what you said, yep. 0.3. Mm-hmm. Does it get any hotter than that? Do you ever see 0.4? That is the hottest it's ever been in the United Kingdom. And all the weather pundits were were quite gobsmacked. They've been saying for the last year or so that this year we won't go above 40 degrees. So everybody was, wow, really? Gosh, mm, this is a wake-up call. Does does anyone know the conversion on 40.3? I had to Google it. It's 104 Fahrenheit. 104. Yeah. Roughly double it and add 30. Double it and add 30, roughly, yeah, that's right. Oh, you guys always say that, and I wish I could remember it. If I didn't have a, a brain the size of a pea, I would remember those sorts of things. You know why? Because they never say that. All they, all they ever say is double it and add 30, but they never say remember it afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> Grant Johnson is in British Columbia, Canada. Grant, hello. Hello, everybody. Good to be back. Our weather is... You're going to give a weather hot. report too? Or not I've, that hot. Why not? I've got, I've got to follow in. The, are, are we going to follow into weather reports with everyone? Because, the weather report is required. Because you do realize it's a little delayed by the time somebody hears this. Yeah, well, it's 
supposed to stay hot. So, and we're having forest fires, but there you go. That's kind of the new normal, isn't it? But otherwise, all good. We're getting events organized and I'm not getting any writing in, which is really bumming me out because I've done something bad to my wrist. Oh. I've managed to sprain a, what do you call it? It's it's an RSI thing from the thumb up to the elbow and it's, I can't bend it, don't do anything to it. And the doctor said six weeks and be good and ice it four times a day and put stuff on it. And I'm wearing a wrist brace. I'm really annoyed. That's horrible. I survive. How did you do that? Did you flip through the yellow pages or something? That's the worst part. I have absolutely no idea. I don't think it was from writing. I'm the the top thing is that it's my right thumb, which is the thumb that I use to hit the space bar on a keyboard. So I will blame that. Hmm. That's all I got. Too many spaces. Michelle Lamfer is in the Black Hills of South Dakota. Hello, Michelle. In the middle of your season. Hello, everybody. Yes, we are in peak season. And I I have to say, I'm not ever tired of motorcycles, but this is kind of the time of year where I'm just about there. (laughs) So I'm probably jealous. That's really what it is. Not that I want to be out, you know, cruising in the heat and la la la, but just being on a motorcycle and out enjoying the hills and Sturgis uh, Bike Week is just... uh, taken place in the Black Hills. And so, yeah, I, I've had a lot of rumbling engines roaring by the hotel for days and days. And of course, that makes me wish I were out riding instead of cleaning rooms. Mm. So, yay. Next week, maybe. And, and your internet is a little weak today because, hey, you're in the Black Hills of South Dakota in the summertime, right? And everyone's there. And I'm having to share the internet with everybody who's come to visit. Yes. Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks are in Australia. Brian and Shirley, good morning. How is your winter going? Good morning. Good morning. It's very cold here this morning and another really big frost. We don't snow, as you know, but it's um, it's chilly, Billy. We could do with some of Sam's warmth. Oh, look, it's, we do get snow about a kilometre away on a hill, but that's about it. But um, when we have a big frost, we have beautiful blue sky days, not a cloud in the sky. Lovely for going for a ride. So I'm looking forward to probably two hours time it should be good and michelle i just have to say that there may be a lot of bikes in sturgis but i don't think there's more bikes in sturgis than there are in brian's shed the shed, is, <laughs> the shed has been breeding since we last spoke uh, is that right so per square foot yeah he's probably giving them some competition uh, <laughs> I, I couldn't resist it did you see it michelle did you see that bike of course I did. And I was very happy to see it. I'm sorry, Shirley, but I thought it was beautiful. I I did read your comment and I didn't think you were being very helpful. <laughs> I, I missed all this. What, what's this bike you got, Brian? Uh, um, I, I go to church on Fridays. Church is a mate's shed where he's got about 15 Ducatis and we sit there. He's got a bar and a pool table and we um, chew the fat, share a few beers um, and all that sort of stuff. That's our church. And we were discussing that they'd found an old guy who had a, a KLR 650 up in his shed and he hadn't used for a while. So two boys went around and had a look at it and said, oh, it's not really for us. And I thought, hmm, I'll go and have a look. Uh, my son uh, really loves the KLR 650. So I'd go around there and this thing had been sitting for three years. It's a 2008 KLR with an original 11,000 kilometres on it. So I thought, yep, I'll buy that. 
he'd, he'd gone for a ride up a hill, dropped it once, had a scratch down on the right-hand side and uh, parked it. So he gave me that, had the original toolkit, even threw his helmet in. So, yeah, for $1,800 sitting in my shed. Oh, you said what? an old guy. Yeah, I know. Everything's relative. Yeah. This guy must be ancient if he's older than Brian. He was even older than Grant. He was even older than Grant. Oh, come on. <laughs> careful, careful. <laughs> That's easy to be older than me. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, this one's going to my son, Stephen. So, um, yeah, it just needs a little yeah. bit of TLC and it'll be good. I've got it up on my screen on, on, on Facebook and I'm just having a look. It's a, yeah, it's a sweet looking bike. Nice. I think you got yourself a bargain there, hey? Yeah, I reckon. So, Brian, the, the KLR for you in Australia, does it have the small tank or the large tank, the big 23-litre tank? Uh, it's the 23-litre, I think, from looking um, – memory, uh, Michelle, you'd know better than me. I, just looking That's at what it, it looked like from the photo. Yeah, yeah, yeah mm. I'm pretty sure it's 23-litre, but it's had fuel sitting in it, so that'll have to come off and be cleaned out. The carby will have to be sonic cleaned and new lines put in it. So there's a little bit of work. Um, but uh, that's all it'll need. And I've got my old XT600 X Army bike, so we'll be able to throw the swag on the back and off we go. The funny thing with the Facebook posts is the young oh, man yeah. who's getting the bike, his wife made a smart crack towards me about how I put up with all these bikes. <laughs> and I thought clearly someone hasn't told his wife that he is actually the owner of the KLR. <laughs> waiting for the right moment. <laughs> I think he was waiting for the moment when she was asleep and he could tell her and then say, yes, I told you weeks ago that I'd been <laughs> <laughs> there's a plan. I hadn't thought of that one. Very good. I like that, Shirley. Thank you. you. Seriously, you've never used that one? I told you about I that before? That one. I thought that was like a standard <laughs> one. I, I mentioned that to you all. Already. I'm sure I did. Yeah, that's the um, the boy equivalent of when you get a new pair of shoes or a new jacket or something. You say, this old thing, I've yeah. had this for ages. <laughs> that's right. I've heard that one too. <laughs> yeah, so we've got to swap out the uh, little two-stroke uh, 100cc bikes we've got for the grandkids and we'll probably upgrade them because the kids are getting a bit big now. So I'm on the hunt now for probably the 250 trail bike of some description just to play around with. Ah, nice. Well, today we're, uh, for part one, we're going to talk about um, some cool camping gadgets. You know, it, it's hard to believe that after all these years that people have been enjoying camping, that there could be anything new to invent. I mean, you'd think it would be all the same things, but we're not only seeing new things, but we're seeing new versions of old things. I mean, certainly better materials, lighter, stronger. Look at camp stoves, how they've evolved, you know, from being a suitcase style camp stove, you know, the big bulky things unsuitable for motorcycle riding to now some of them are so fold up so small you can put them in your pocket how cool is that right so that's what we're exploring today we're talking about cool camping gadgets and hopefully some new ones that um others haven't heard of so who uses an unusual gadget for camping to begin with our unusual camping gadget is a motel room <laughs> <laughs> that is unusual and tough to carry around with you. Yeah, I know it's a bit tough to carry around. Um, we at one stage there we had a uh, two prong toaster, which was actually made out of coat hanger wire, and um, that was a ripper. Actually, you know, you you get a coat hanger and you twist it to make the the twist nice, uh, uh, the handle nice and tight. 
and you have two prongs and you sharpen them and, uh, yeah, a free toaster. Fantastic. But yeah. we, we had that in Alaska and um, an American fellow we were travelling with thought that wasn't very good at all. So he bought us what became known as the Tower of Toast and it was a, a, tri- a sort of a three-sided triangle that you sat over the burner on your um, cooking stove and put three slices of toast on. Um, it incinerated the toast. The bottom. The bottom of the toast. The top part was raw. And um, if you didn't watch it, it would actually sort of start to melt bits of the stove. (laughs) The Tower of Toast was a nightmare, and I'm presuming they're not available now. I reckon it was a Canadian. No, I've I've seen them as well. Very cheesy, very cheap things. But but with that is you want to be careful if you're using gasoline, for instance, your stove. It depends on the fuel you're burning. You don't want to use it as just any stove. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, if you're burning burning gas in your MSR stove or or your, your, your stove... It's going to stink. It's going to taste horrible. Uh, just, uh, 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 Put Vegemite on a gym. Oh, Vegemite good point. <laughs> That'll fix anything. <laughs> well, since we're talking breakfast, um, now I'm a cheapskate, as you know, so this is actually a real one from, from me, but you can actually buy these things now, which I just tickled me pink. Um I'm not allowed to say chuff, by the way, because I've had one or two comments about the number of times that I use chuff, and um, apparently chuff is um, a different um, a different meaning in some languages. 272 times, not including today. <laughs> <laughs> okay, moving rapidly on. Um, <laughs> coffee sock. Now, who likes fresh coffee when they're traveling? I do. Oh, I think it's fantastic to have fresh coffee. And I literally have used um, just an ordinary sock when I've gone down to, okay, hole in one, then the other one turns into a coffee sock. So you just put your coffee inside the sock and then dangle it in your mug and off you go with the hot water and that's that, job done. And if you're really, really tight for space, of course, then what, you just alternate the ones that you're using, but that's another story. But you can actually <laughs> buy coffee socks now. And to me, it actually makes an awful lot of sense because they take up a minimal amount of space. But yeah, if you want fresh coffee, then what a great way to go. Are you saying it makes sense to buy the one that you that is made for coffee or using your sock as the coffee sock? I, I would use my sock, but like I said, I'm a cheapskate. But yeah, you can actually buy coffee socks. I kind of tickled by that. Right. There's all different ways to make coffee, isn't there? I mean, they, they come up with so many camping things. Have you guys seen the espresso maker for, for camping? Mm. Mm-hmm. That's an impressive little gadget. It's tempted me several times, but I just keep thinking, mm, my sock does a good job. Good enough a lot of times. Well, it won't have the flavor that you're getting with the sock, for sure. <laughs> no, that is true. That is true. Mm. <laughs> who, said, who said that? Hmm. It was me. And I'm think, I always thought that was like an old cowboy legend. We used to make jokes about cowboys out on the prairie making coffee with their socks. I, I had no idea it was real. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't think they bothered with the coffee, though, Michelle. Oh. Yeah, probably. Not. <laughs> yeah. There, there's another yeah. cowboy coffee making system that I've seen people use, and, and I've read about it just recently. It kind of made me think of it because I think it's the dumbest thing that you could ever do. But um, they they boil. They have a, a kettle. They boil the water in it. They pour the grains just into the kettle, and then they swing the kettle around and use centrifugal force to get the grains to the bottom. And anytime I've heard anyone talk about this or I've seen it, and I, I said, I just recently read about it again, 
I always think it's got to be the dumbest thing I could ever imagine anyone doing. You're camping, you're away from things, and you're spinning a, a thing of hot water around in a kettle that's not meant to be spun. It's got a lightweight handle on it. If it hits your leg or something, I mean, you can imagine it'll be you, it'll be the person with you. Everybody's going to be burnt from this coffee. <laughs> Crazy yeah, stuff. And it's, it's, no, Jim, that's that's uh, the typical uh, Billy tea that they used to make in, uh, well, they still do in Australia. When you go camping, you put tea in a Billy, which is an open pan, basically, with the handle, and uh, you put some gum leaves on top, and you swing it, and you swing it slowly and get it up to some centrifugal force, and you swing it around your head using that uh, mechanism. That's right. That's exactly what they did. <laughs> and um, that's how you make a good Billy tea. I right. have one thing to say. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just getting um, images of, of the locals looking at, um, at at us sort of standing in the middle of fields or in forests, <laughs> waving things around our head. You could just see, yes, very strange, these people. <laughs> Everything they say about motorcyclists, it's true. <laughs> Grant, how do you make your coffee when you camp? I don't. I don't drink coffee. Don't no. like coffee. Never yeah. have yeah. liked coffee. So you make tea I'm with and you, it comes. So it's I don't really get simple. It. No, I don't like tea either. You don't I just like tea drink either. Water. What's wrong no, with you? I'll do hot chocolate. I like hot chocolate. <laughs> oh, well, hot chocolate. And I'll do good. that. Okay, yeah, Michelle. So I have a big mug. Michelle, yeah. well, how do you make your coffee? I don't. I don't drink coffee either. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I do make tea, so I just boil water in a pan and pour it into a collapsible neoprene type, neoprene, but some sort of rubber cup that I have that's collapsible from sea to summit. And yeah, it's it's really simple, much easier than coffee from the sounds of it. Well, that's a silicone rubber. Is that what that is? Yes, thank you. Right. That that's the word. Right. Yeah, those sea to summit mugs are great. I've got a nice big one of those, and I use a, their small bowl that's collapsible as well. And that's it for dishes for me. That's all I need, just the two. I actually have a pan, or I should say a pot, that you can boil water in, and it's that collapsible silicone rubber pot. So you can boil, I think it's a liter, but the pot itself collapses flat like a small plate. Wow. So it really packs well. I've never used yeah. that before. I've never used some of the, the silicone uh, things that are made for hot stuff. Like um, they have them for the, the oven now too, as well. Like mm -hmm. rubber, um, rubber pans for making muffins and stuff in. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, I'll tell you what, the old drovers would be um, going off at this. In the old <laughs> days, the drovers uh, breakfast used to be, you get up, um, oh, no, Joe, yeah. you can't... I could say, I could say, I've, I've, I've cleaned it up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you you, you, you uh, look around, you have a spit and a pee and get back on your horse and start herding the cows. That's it? See, it loses a lot, it. It loses a lot no in, the, in the clean-up translation. It does <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's very true. Surely I appreciate you censoring, though, before it came out. That was good. No, no, Jim, you, you don't want to hear the original version. Just I, I probably don't. <laughs> but going back to um, hot drinks, I'm, I'm like um, Grant. I don't drink tea or coffee. Or Michelle. Um, Michelle drinks tea. But Brian is a big fan of miso soup, and I discovered at our local farmer's market on the weekend, you can buy little balls of miso soup and you just use them like a tea bag. You put them in the bottom of the mug, put boiling water on top, and you have a, a miso soup. So we head off for a big trip in the outback, but we're not going on the bike. Um, 
but we're taking miso soup for morning tea rather than tea or coffee. Mm. Shirley, what is miso soup? Japanese. Japanese soup, which has got no texture to it. It's just like drinking a cup of hot water to me, but yeah. I think miso is a fermented kind of soybean, isn't it? Yeah. And it's concentrated into like a paste and then it's kind of liquefied into soup. Yeah. Yeah. And the paste is, it, it's uh, dried a little. So it, it holds its shape like a ball, Michelle. And uh, it actually, I had one the other day and it actually had the um, uh, the um, seaweed in it. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah they're really great. cool. They're really cool. Made by a little Japanese lady who lives in downtown Castlemaine in central Victoria. So there you go. Hmm. Sounds very packable. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly right. And yeah, delicious. So. I should say that part. And delicious. Yeah. yeah. Well, what else have we had? We've, we've, um, you guys have fly nets, don't you? You carry a fly net with you? Yeah. Yeah. Net. Yep. Yeah. 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 Oh, they are they're essential when you're travelling. Um, I reckon in the outback in particular. I had a friend who had a. Um, um, we were travelling down the west coast of Australia, and it's fine if you've got an onshore breeze. He had a um, his front tire delaminated, and he's hundreds of kilometres from everywhere. So as good travelling companions, we said, well, stuff you. You can wait for the tow truck. We're heading off because the wind was blowing from the inland and when you stopped, you were surrounded by thousands of flies, thousands of them. And uh, they all laughed at me when I produced my fly net, but they wanted to rip it off my head and take it themselves when they started (laughs) realising that uh, the fly nets kept the flies out of your mouth. Yeah, I have to admit, the first time I saw Brian where he's, I mocked for about three and a half minutes and then I begged him to let me have it because I was his wife and he should do the right thing. Yeah. <laughs> he should have brought two. <laughs> that would have we been have two now. <laughs> so yeah, does I've this mean that... Um, they're fantastic. Does this mean that corks are now redundant, so they're straight in the recycling bin? Well, the thing is, corks are hard to get here now because wines, all wine, most wine is made under cap rather than cork. So it's, yeah, it's it, corks are becoming harder and harder to get. That was next on my list, Sam, was cork hat. And mm. because that's what we used to wear, um, you know, with your Akubra, you'd put holes in it and hang corks off it to, to keep the flies away. But uh, that's, yeah, it's a bit redundant now. The other thing was um, a Hessian water bag. Did you ever have mm-hmm. those? Yeah. Right. Water bags, we called them. Yeah. Yeah. And they actually, as you travel, it cools the water down. Yeah. Fantastic bits of kit. I was going to mention about the nets thing. There, there's a whole, there's a bunch of different version nets you can get. There, there's full jackets you can get that are, that have netting all down the sleeves to vent. There's that ones that go over your head, but it's amazing what a net does. Like, you know, if you, if you set up a, like a screen room in a real buggy area, it's amazing what that does for um, your sanity, you know, just having mm-hmm. it set up, even if some, even if there's spots where they can leak in, there's um, just that barrier does so much. And, and, and one little tip, if you have it at night, they seem to be any mosquitoes or flies that get in, in uh, past the netting during the night will come after your headlamp, et cetera. But if you put the lights up top, and, and so they're away from you. It's still illuminating everything in there. They tend to fly up towards the top. So hey, if you ever have a net you're putting up, do that and it keeps them away from you. You can sit there comfortably. Those net houses, Jim, um, yeah, we went across the Simpson Desert and managed to do five or six days in the desert without flies. And then the last night we camped, 
we noticed a few flies as we were starting to set up camp. Again, we were in cars and we put at this, um, it was like a little room, a netted room, and set up our cooking and, and eating table inside. And all you could hear were the flies attacking the net, the <laughs> net <laughs> to try and get oh. into us and the food. Oh, yeah. uh, again, I mocked when the, our travelling companion said they were bringing this, but I was so glad we had it that night because eating and drinking would have been impossible. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. it's creepy when you lay in a tent. Have you had that when you lay in the tent and you, and you hear the buzzing and you can feel or you hear the the smacking as they're smacking against the net, which is only inches from your face and your feet and everything. Uh, in my hammock, it's even closer than that. It can. Uh, you sort of just have to. I can't remember where it was, but I well camped um, on the coast somewhere south of Sydney, probably about a hundred miles south, and lovely little bay, white sand beach, and sort of. Um, curve of, of woods running right the way around rocks and white sand and I set up my tent there on the beach and within seconds flies and I had a lot of extra protein with my dinner that night yeah I bet <laughs> I, I could not get the, the spoon from my bowl which of course my left hand was was wafting over to keep the flies off it I could not get the spoon from the bowl to my mouth um, without adding, um, having flies on it. It was, um, yeah, it was just not don't a nice experience. It. You just eat them anyway? No, just get on with it. Yeah. yeah, just get on with it. And I thought to myself, well, what are they going to be sitting on? Kangaroo and wallaby poop, that'll do. Yeah. It's all healthy stuff. It's decomposing. <laughs> Surely when yeah. you say flies, are they biting flies? Um, no, no, they're annoying flies. We annoying. get match flies, which are bi um, biting flies, but we just get the little... Butts of things. They're really awful. Yeah. And there's so many of them and they're little and they're sticky and they want to get into your mouth and your nose and your eyes. And God, for anyone who's having their breakfast or lunch or dinner while listening to this, I hope you're enjoying it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my experience in Australia was the same. I remember camping on a beach and looking up and all I could see was this dark black band. Must have been 50 feet wide that I could see off the whole length of the beach. What the heck is that? And then as the sun went down, I realized what it was. It was billions of flies. <laughs> and I had to retreat to the tent. It was, you know, when there's a, this dark band that you can't see through, you know there's a lot of them. Mm -hmm. And that was just stunning to see. But yeah, the mosquito net was, uh, had that was a requirement. But I've also found something recently made by Thermocell. It was a mosquito repellent. They have this, it runs off a butane cartridge and you put a little mat on top of it and light it up and you can actually get one that you can carry on your waist and you can put one on in front of you. And they supposedly do like 10 meters or no, five meters around you, um, completely mosquito free and people swear by them. I haven't tried one yet, but I bought one. So I have to try it out when I get some mosquitoes around here. Oh, that's interesting. Moment, it, it looks really good. Thermocell. That's interesting. I, I've not come across that yet. Have you guys tried um, citronella candles? I, I'm never convinced whether they work or not. They smell nice yeah. and it's great, you know. Yeah. Well, I think they do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They they help, but the thermocell is supposed to be far better, and you don't have the risk of a, of an open flame. Yeah, maybe it's where you are because you know, like I notice a difference even even in Canada, even from British Columbia to Ontario. Like, there's a definite difference in in the flies. Like, there's mosquitoes on the coast. 
most people you know, say there's no mosquitoes. There, there's mosquitoes on the coast, definitely. But they're friendlier, easygoing mosquitoes. You know, they tend to fly around <laughs> yeah. and say, hey, I'm going to bite you. Yeah. They fly up. They might bump into you a couple of times. You know, they take their time. Everything's laid back. It's the coast. But you come to Ontario, there's no messing around here. They'll push you down. You're going to have to fight to keep these mosquitoes off you. They will take you down. So it, it just depends on where you are, I think. Yeah. I yeah you get say. into the back country here and it can be pretty bad too. Mm-hmm. I think the worst flies I've ever experienced were on the Trans-Labrador Highway in northern Quebec. Uh, just the tiny little black flies that would actually just riding down the road with my full, you know, setup and gear on, my jacket zipped all the way up, my visor closed on my helmet with a full face helmet, gloves, everything. And they would find little ways to burrow in between my collar and my helmet and crawl up into inside my helmet into my hairline and fight. It was so annoying. And I can see, even with all that gear on, I think I pulled over in Labrador City and spent the night in a hotel and I counted 56 bites just from one day when I was wearing a full kit. (laughs) So, yeah, yeah, you uh, Canadians really put up with a lot of bad bugs up there. So I have a lot of respect for that. (laughs) (laughs) I've never forgotten riding up the Alcan Highway and um, mosquitoes there and Birgit and I laughingly said, "Mm, F-16 fighter jets, they've got that tenacity and that size. But um, yeah, they're just not funny, are they? One thing I'm very lucky with Birgit is that um, she can catch them. you know, you know when you're really so careful when you're getting into your tent at night time and, you know, lights are off and you've, um, yeah, you just do everything right, but still you'll get half a dozen that will get in there. And Birgit just sits in the tent and grabs them out of the air and she never misses. It's absolutely fantastic. I should wow. have recorded, videoed her doing it. <laughs> um, perhaps I will next time we're in that environment. Impressive. Every trip needs one. Oh, yeah. You know, there's a, there's a tip you can, I, I'll give you for that. If you wet your hand, do you have, far better chance of, of killing the mosquito, like of grabbing it in the air than if your hand's dry. Try it. Now, why would that be? Wet makes it kind of sticky and they stick to your hand is what it is. So you go to grab them and instead of them just brushing off your skin, they actually stick there mm-hmm. and then you have them in your hand and you squish them. Hopefully they're not full nice. of blood. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's all different kinds of mosquitoes. Do you guys know that? There's like all different like oh. little subspecies, I guess, of them. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think they have different personalities too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so I'm I'm going kind of deep in the mosquito thing here. So um, I, I was asking about um, we we got into the food preparation thing, which I, I think is somewhat interesting. Does anyone anyone have a a piece of gear that when you use it, people sort of look at it and go, "What the heck is that?" or "Why would you use that?" Well, if I can go back to food equipment for just a second, I have to say I had some motorcycling friends from Alberta who traveled. I was camping with them, I think in BC for Horizons Unlimited Meat. And they had brought along a camp size pressure cooker. I don't know if that's the term that you use in Europe or Australia, but Mm -hmm. um, a pressure cooker. So they could actually make curry with chickpeas. So dried chickpeas as opposed to canned chickpeas. Uh, But they were telling me it was, it was, it is literally camping gear size. So it makes enough dinner really for two people. But it was perfect because of the pressure cooker quickness. It, it cooks food much more quickly. You use less fuel, uh, which I thought was fascinating. And I'd never seen anybody travel with a piece of kit that big. But 
They made a curry one night that made me want to buy one. It was amazing. Oh, really? well, maybe that's how they sell those things. They said it saves fuel. Yeah, it saves stove fuel, but it costs you more fuel right. on your bike to drive to ride around with it. <laughs> right. Well, it depends on how big it is. <laughs> yeah, and you just pack stuff inside of it. And, yeah. You now make use of that space. They are actually quite lightweight. I was surprised. Um, we met some people who were using one too, and um, yeah, I was very impressed with it. Um, it is so fast and. Because you're using those, then you can buy lesser quality meat, for example, and just make fantastic curry really quickly. And if you tried to cook it um, just ordinary in a pan, you'd be boiling and boiling and boiling for ages and ages. But in a pressure cooker, you can just zap through it really quickly. So I was quite impressed. Have I bought one? No. Mm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm definitely very, very minimalist. I was thinking about some of the things that, that I don't use that are common. Like I hate sporks, for instance. I like why would you want to use a spork when you're on a motorcycle? It's not like you're carrying it on your back. Um, you can have a proper knife and fork and spoon. Actually, I don't even use a, a fork. I just use a spoon and a knife. Me too. It does the whole job. It's just fine. Yeah, yeah, it I does agree. all you need. Yeah, I just use a spoon and my pen knife. It's, yeah. It does everything. Yeah. I mean, there's some things that, that you can skimp on for whatever, for weight. But some people, yeah, that, that to, in my thought process, I don't, I don't see the point in that at all. Yeah, I think I've used a spork. I, the, I was given one, and here, yeah, this is really cool. It's super lightweight. Yeah, I was on a backpacking trip, so cool. I'm not, I'm carrying it, and then I used it as a spoon, and then I had to turn it around to use it as a fork, and or to use the knife. I, Wait a minute, what's the? Why would I want to do that? Yeah, now your just, hands full of food. Yeah, it was just messy and unpleasant. And, no thanks. So I just used um, a Lexan knife and spoon, and it weighs nothing. Um, and it's useful. Like, uh, I understand Sam using a pen knife, but again, you've got to keep it clean. It's more of a uh, hassle. I use one, one blade for food, one blade for everything else. Okay. Yeah. I mean, to each, you know, there's some stuff I think that you should yeah, just take works. with you and, and, and enjoy. Yeah, use, use whatever works with you. But when you get, I mean, because you don't need underwear, but I mean, it's kind of nice to have, right? So you don't leave your underwear at home for it so you don't have the bulk and the extra weight. But I mean, it's kind of nice to have and a fork and a knife to me. Those simple things to sit down for a meal and try and eat it with a spork. I've, I've never got that either. Yeah. Yeah. I found like uh, we were talking about the Sea to Summit mugs and bowls, that that, and uh, my Lexan knife and fork. And I'm using a jet boil stove now, which I find to be absolutely amazing. They're, they're so quick. And so little hassle. It's just really easy. That's butane. So how are you getting on with cooking? Butane. Fantastic. It works just yeah. dandy. Yeah. It doesn't burn it's stuff in the really bottom. fast. Well, you do have to stir occasionally, but um, it, the way it's designed, it distributes the heat quite well. So the sides are really good and there's an insulating neoprene thing around the outside of it. And yeah, works great. I'm how controllable are they? Very. It's typical butane. You can control the heat very well. It's not like the uh, gas stoves like a Svea 123 or an 8R or something like that where controlling the heat's very, very difficult. No, it's it's excellent. I've never we met have a, anybody we, who's got one that doesn't rave about it. Yeah, we yeah, have a jet boil. They don't, they don't work well with the Tower of Toast, just saying. <laughs> 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 I can guarantee you agree with that. You know, yeah, something I, I see online every now and then from people is, um, oh, my stove's become really uncontrollable. I can't cook without burning. Um, and something that Birgit and I had this problem with with one of our stoves for a while, and we found the ideal solution to cut both ends off a tin of tuna, punch the sides with holes, 
and um, then just sit that on top of the burner and the extra inch or so of space with the holes in the side meant that um, we never burned anything after that. It was such a simple but effective um, thing to do. Mm, yeah, any kind good. of an insulator. Clever. Yeah, it's good as well. What else? We have oh, really good you. chairs and table, but everyone's got the Hellnox chairs now, I yes, think. absolutely. Those little fold-up chairs and the little fold-up table, they are really awesome on the bike. Yep, love them. Yeah, I don't have that. I've got to try that. I drink coffee, but I don't have a Helinox chair. Oh, I feel sorry. For Anyone can use them, whether you drink coffee or not. Well, I just thought because I sort of, I you know, I'm opposite, right? No one here seems to like coffee except for me. Sam, do you drink coffee? I may. Okay. Oh, yeah. So just Sam and I, we're, we're, the, we're the coffee people. No, no, no. I, do, yeah. I love it. I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm with you guys. Right, right. Yeah. I forgot Excellent. about you, Brian. That's Good right. Man. Because you were drinking it at the Rabbit Trap Cafe thing. It was indeed. <laughs> I think we're evenly split here. We got three on each side. <laughs> Thanks, so. I, I just love that rabbit trap um, bumper sticker that they've got. You know, the rabbit trap hotel and the, the rabbit with a hat on outside it. And it's got, wear the fox hat. <laughs> <laughs> Did you put that on your bike? I've got it ready to go on the bike. <laughs> Very nice. Could you post a, um, a photo of that, Brian? Yeah, I could do that, mate. Oh, good man. Have you guys come across um, the solar-powered inflatable lights yet? Yes. And I love those. They're about three inches by three inches, aren't they, Michelle? A solar panel across the top, and you've got two different types. Um, They both inflate just by blowing them up. Um, So they form a, a, a cube. And with, you know, a few hours worth of charging in broad sunlight, you can go for about 11 hours worth of of light and you can have them so that you can use them at three different powers of light, if you're with me. And you can also use them for flashing lights. And I know people that have used those on the back ends of their bikes when they've broken down um, towards the end of the day and it's turned in tonight. And they've just used those as warning lights that they're by the side of the road. But the more expensive ones, you can also, um, the solar panel works so well that you can even charge your phone um, by plugging them in. So I'm, I'm actually quite impressed. A friend, Jim Moss, gave me one of these and I thought, Jim, that's a really nice present, but I haven't got the space to carry this. But oh, well, what the hell, that's a really nice present. Thanks, mate. And started using it and I just thought, wow, what a great bit of kit. Yeah, it's a lot better than the uh, alternative that I saw was, how to explain it, it's a Wood burning and USB charging camp stove. That's the BioLite. The BioLite, yes. Yeah. I have a friend yeah. who used one when we rode the Continental Divide and she charged her phone over the campfire each day. So she was burning kindling and her phone's right next to the fire. Made me very nervous, but it worked. Yes. For weeks and weeks, she charged her phone by burning kindling. Yeah, but you can, you're on a motorcycle. I, I was just going to say that. Just plug it into your. <laughs> your um, I looked at the size of the things and thought that's very bulky and burning twigs is is messy and a little tricky and you've got to fiddle with it. And then how long does it take that you have to keep this fire going in order to charge your phone when, gee, you could just plug it into a USB socket on your bike all day long and have it fully charged. Just see, didn't this make is, any sense to me for a motorcycle. No, this is what <laughs> I don't get about the whole solar panel thing and everything you often see with, with people who ride motorcycles is that um, you, you've got a bike that's charging. You know, the, the, why Why not just plug your stuff in, let it charge during the day. And if you really have something you had to discharge at night, you know, for some reason, or you want to run at night, you could charge a battery. You get one of those, 
uh, what's the what's the name of those high quality batteries? It escapes me right now. I know right. I have anti gravity, zero gravity, gravity. That's one. Yep, yep. That's one. That's not the one I was thinking of. This um, anyway, it doesn't matter. Anchor. That's it. Anchor was the one I was thinking of. But yeah, any any one of those, you can take a little battery, plug it in, charge it up. It'll have enough power to even charge your computer when you stop. It just doesn't make sense to me to try and ride around with solar panels on a bike that's already generating power and all that sort of stuff. Um, I know what a solar panel is good for. I know what it's good for. I know what it's good for. What? When your charging system quits and your battery's dead, then it'd be great. Right. And also when when you're stationary for a few days, Mm. if you're not actually out riding, they're helpful to kind of keep electronics charged up while you're camped for a couple of days in one spot, as long as it's sunny. Yeah. So there you go, uh, on the other hand, your bike battery will charge your phone 20 times and it won't still start. Oh, so. easily. There you go. Yep. When um, Al Jesse owned Jesse Luggage Store, he made what was called the pizza box, which was a top box, uh, which was quite flattened. Yeah, so you can imagine why it was called the pizza box. Um, but you could still fit, I don't know, 20 liters of luggage in this thing. It was just quite incredible. It capacious, but it didn't look it. But the lid um, had a solar panel on the top. And I, I thought, yeah, okay, fair enough. Um, but um, I ended up camping for a week in one place and just going off and hiking every day. And I just used it to charge my phone. Um, brilliant. Didn't yeah. pull anything off the bike at all with that. And it, it's, yeah, it was cheap, effective, didn't get in the way, didn't have to carry it anywhere, you know, didn't store inside or anything else like that. So I thought it was really efficient. Um, I've tried oh, I- solar-powered um, power banks since then. Um, yeah. A friend, Mark Carrera, gave me one. And it worked actually quite effectively, but I never um, liked the, the thought of having to leave it sitting outside my tent to charge. So it was always having to be slung on the outside of my backpack. And I wasn't convinced a lot of the time that I was getting the best the best light angle for it, but it, it did work. Um, Solar panels good. are not very efficient. I mean, I, I'm trying to think of what the, I think mm. it's only at like 12% or something like that efficiency mm. with a solar panel. That's with a good quality solar panel. So they're not mm-hmm. very efficient. Yeah. You're not going to get a lot. It takes a lot of sun to generate a lot, uh, any significant amount of power for, I mean, like we have solar panels here. We're off grid. We, we run on solar panels all the time. We have a battery bank that's charged by them and that I'm running on now, but um, it takes a lot. Like, you know, you get a couple of cloudy days and you've got no power, basically, very little power from from a cloudy day. Yeah, I know. I I have to admit that when we headed off in 1987, we actually had solar panels sitting on top of the top box when we felt we needed it to charge our laptop if we were going to be sitting there for a while. Did we actually use them? Um, Well, I think once and it took all day and the charge meter bumped up about 2%. And they said, well, well, that's just not going to cut it. And we also used them for rechargeable um, NICAD batteries in those days. And that wasn't very efficient either. And eventually we just gave up on the whole idea. And this was two solar panels that covered the entire top of the top box. And they they're were the best you could get now, at the time. Grant. Yeah, they're definitely they're better now. They're a lot better now, which I was going to say next. But yes, absolutely. They're so much better. I mean, that was a long time ago. But um, I still stand by, just plug it into the bike. I think one of my favorite bits of kits um, is a water bottle with a filter in it. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. Mm, that's a good it point. It's yes. so much easier than than polluting your body with iodine tablets and all of the other chemicals. Uh, we either use the water bottles with the filters in or we boil our water and that's it, job done. Yeah. Has, has yeah. anyone we seen... had a catadine when we traveled and that was, uh, that was a pump system and 
Yeah, mm. yeah. By the time you got any drinkable amount of water, you were worn out and needed the water to drink. I found I was sweating more than I was actually pumping out some yes. days. Yep. You had a catadine too? I did. And the darn things would plug. I mean, you were supposed to drop them into any village pond and pump out <laughs> clean water. Yeah. I mean, you see the animals and the kids peeing in the pond and all of the rest of it. So, yeah, you, you've got to have a lot of faith in this thing. But <laughs> darn it, those ponds are always mucky. And mm-hmm. you, you ended up using half of the clean water that you pumped out to clean the filter so that you could pump more. And when it's hot, um, yeah, they, um, yeah, not very efficient. Well, the, modern ones are so much better. Yeah, that's what yeah. I was going to say. Yeah. yeah, I've got one now that's gravity fed. Oh, and by the way, Michelle, I was just going to mention before we go off, uh, right now that we're already off topic, I was going to mention though, that, but I would like to try that stove that charges the phone just from, from a geeky standpoint. You know, I think that's pretty cool, that setup anyway. The, the BioLite was really cool. And I, at the time, I know Grant mentioned a um, the camp stove that, I, I'm sorry, I've already forgotten the name of it. Jetboil. Jetboil, because I have a different brand. I actually have an MSR that's their version of the Jetboil, but it's the same concept. It's kind of got that circular fin system on the bottom, and you put it over just a small can of uh, propane or butane, isobutane, whatever it is. Um, So it was a very similar size to mine, and she would make tea just at the same time I would in the mornings and packed up really well. She was very happy with it, and I thought it was kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah. from a cool factor, I think it's pretty cool. I, I, I've seen them and yeah. I thought, well, that'd be neat to try. But practicality is, like being practical with it is, is something different. But uh, I'd take it if I had it. I, anyway, just say that. I wonder what the difference in cost of, of buying the things is. Because if you think about it, um, gas is not always available. You get off the beaten track. Um, tweaks, you That's can right. normally find. Oh, I, I've got a I've got a stove that I love. And, it, and it's the same sort of thing as that, that you're talking about the BioLite, except this one doesn't charge batteries or anything. It's just a folding stove. It's, it's made of heavy, heavy stainless steel. And you just unfold it and you burn twigs with it. I think I've told you guys about it before, but it's fantastic. Mm. I mean, I love the thing. I, I just love it. And I often sit there and just make it my thing where I'll only use what I can reach around me to burn and uh, just burn little bits of twigs and you know, cook your whole dinner. It works great. That's a friend in Virginia let me use one um theirs and i was impressed it did work really well but man it's heavy i wouldn't want to carry it on a bike yeah mine's mine's not heavy mine fits in your pocket like you could put it in your pocket it's like a like a large wallet i guess you you'd say heavier obviously than that but i mean um not oh, super well. heavy oh that's that's much smaller than the one that i saw mm. Mm. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of folding ones. There's some that, that break down actually into separate panels. But what I like about mine is that I think it's called the magic stove or something now or some something like that. And I've had it for a long, long time, but it but it's all together and it just unfolds. I don't have to assemble it because some of them you have to assemble the panels to it, which is, you know, sort of tedious to do. But uh, this is just to unfold and throw your wood in and start it up. Way you go. Sounds great. You were, um, you guys were, t- you were mentioning, um, water filters. Do you guys all carry water filters? Yeah. Yeah. I do. Brian, you don't? Depends where you are, to a saint. No, we don't. No, I, I mean, if you're camping, right? Not camping at the hotel, surely. <laughs> oh. Oh. Um. <laughs> uh, well, no, we don't. You know, they, they say boil water and boil it and boil it and boil it, and it should be okay, but, you know, um, you got sick once, but yeah. Drinking water out of a stream, but you know, 
Probably because there was a dead cow up the other well, end. Well, we but, didn't know there was yeah. a dead cow up the other end. Oh, there was. If I'd oh. known there was a dead cow up the other end, I wouldn't have drunk the water, just yeah. saying. Yeah, you go above Ooh. the cow, sure. That's that's always a good thing to do. <laughs> I know that now, Jim. Yeah, right, An right. upstream of the Excellent. village. <laughs> so you, you guys yeah. just scoop out of streams? That's that's what you're doing? You look for the, you do the old, if it's moving water, it must be good, even if it's going through the cow? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah um, well... In all We're not being careful, yeah, and, and boil water. That's what we used to do. Just boil it, boil it, boil it. Not just for three minutes. You Get it on a rolling boil. Rolling yeah. boil. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and then just let it cool. You know, that's yeah. fine. But if you're only camping for one night, you can carry enough water. You don't need water yeah. filters. And if you're stuck, you know, and, and one of the safety things that I was taught working in the outback um, um, mustard sheep was carry a piece of plastic, clear plastic. And that will be enough to get you water, a piece of plastic. You're talking about mm-hmm. through evaporation. You dig a hole, put it over the yeah. grid, over the hole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Dig, a, dig a hole, foliage, uh, a tin cup or something. Yeah, and a stone in the middle. Yeah, yeah. A little stone in the middle yeah, holds it down, so so when the water condensates in the plastic, it runs to the stone yep. and then drips into your yep. cup. Yeah, yeah, it works. Yep. Surprisingly efficient, isn't it? Yeah. And if you're really desperate, you pee in the hole, and that's fine because oh. the condensation from that. Isn't tainted. Oh, I thought you were doing a, a Mahatma Gandhi thing. That's all. I was just. <laughs> <laughs> you thought he was peeing in the cup. No, yeah, cut out the middle there, just straight into the cup. Yeah, just bypass the whole process. Yeah. <laughs> no, thanks. Well, I mean, since yeah. we're talking about um, water and so on, here's one, and I haven't tried this, but I have seen other people using it. And that's the 10 litre Ortley water carrier. And the two people that I've seen using it um, have had the black ones. Um, and, they, and they say that these work really well because when you're not having to carry lots of water, then you can just roll them up and um, they just tuck away out, out of, you know, out of, they're not bulky. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But um, they carry the black ones because they can also use them for showers. And I think the the shower nozzle to go on them is about $5, something like that. So at the end of the day, um, when they can get hold of water, they just fill up the, um, the the water sacks, tag them on the back of their luggage at the back, and then when they get to a campsite, put the tent up, pull it off, put it on the nozzle, and hang it on a tree and have a shower. And I just think, oh, that looks like total luxury. Mm. You see, surely you don't need a hotel room. <laughs> Seriously, Jim? <laughs> well, no, these guys... Sorry, you, you, you have used. I've that. used bush showers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I actually used one camping, and I also used one when the gas plant blew up in Victoria, and we didn't have gas for about five weeks, which meant we didn't have hot water. But we so, had a bush shower. So we used to have to put um, a jug of water in the microwave, put it in the bush shower, tie the bush shower up in the shower recess in the bathroom, and have a shower that way. So I know they work. (laughs) A jug of water in the microwave. That is cool. I I just automatically assumed the stove, but why not use the microwave? Doesn't heat up the house. We had had no gas 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 chimney. Gas stove. And we had a gas stove. Oh, of course. Yes, of course. And we had no gas. People who had electric hot water could charge a fortune for their showers. (laughs) People were joining gymnasiums so they could go and have a shower before they went to work. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah, well, five oh, weeks yeah. is a long time without a shower it, for most people. Yeah, it is a long time, yeah. With um, water filtration, what we were talking about, has anyone tried the Life Straw? Yes, I have. Uh, um, they really work really well. It, it looks so simple. It, it's it's almost a little unnerving for me when I look at it. I'm thinking, really, you're going to put, because they say you can put that in any kind of water. I think they're saying any kind of water. 
and you basically just suck on the straw and you're drinking the water right there. So it's got like what, four inches to go from the dirty water to your mouth. But if you think about the water bottles that you fill with whatever, and then you're drinking through um, the filter in the neck of the bottle, it's, it's very similar sort of principle. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't used those either, but I, I've got a, like a pump style, like a, I've got a couple of them, but the one I like is the MSR one. Though. I think it's called Waterworks. It's got a filter, that, a ceramic filter that you can um, clean by, you know, by with a little cleaning pad that you have. Yeah. I have a Life Straw too. And I think um, they're on sale once a year with Amazon. Not that I want to support Amazon, but they're like 10 bucks a piece for a Life Straw on Prime Day. And don't they do like a thousand gallons or something crazy like that? Something like that. I can't remember. I've actually never used it. I carry it in my emergency kit, but I have never used one. So it's still in the plastic. Hmm. Yeah. That's Life Straw and a few others make gravity systems as well, which I use and I quite like. I just fill up the bag, hang it from the handlebar and put another bottle down below and it fills up and drains and I don't have to do anything. I can be doing something else while it's, while it's doing the drain and it works fine. Nice. Has, any, has anybody ever tried the UV? water uh, treatment. Those, they're like a, a pen. I think there's a Stara pen or something they oh, call it. Right. I've never used them. I haven't either. I've wondering. heard of them and thought, hmm, interesting. No, a friend of mine had Same one. Same kind of thing. I think, they, I think he won it somewhere, but he, he thought it worked. So, I mean, it's one of those things you don't really huh. know, do you? Because you put it in the water and you press the button or something and it's supposed yeah. to kill anything that's living in there. And then I guess you could filter it after that if you wanted to, if you want to get chunkies out. Otherwise, just um, get your teeth and drink. <laughs> Strain it with your teeth. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Have any of you guys tried the Nord Outdoors Ultralight Camping Air Pump? I came across this a few days back and I'd never seen them before. Are they about the size of a hand, you know, like not very big at all? They're about the size of a, a Zippo lighter. So oh, a small really? That's hand, small. A small hand, uh, yeah. I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. Th- about the height of a Zippo lighter rather than the size yeah. of. Yeah, I've seen them. i They're listening for inflating your camping mattress. Yeah, they weigh about yeah. 85 grams apparently, and they have adapters that fit virtually any um, camping mattress. And they their big sell, selling point on this is that you can um, fill eight mattresses per charge. There's a built-in 40-lumen LED light. Um, but when you blow up um, camping mattresses, of course, the, the, your breath um, after some time starts ca- causing mold. Yeah. And I don't know whether, you, you know, when you've been on the road for a long time and you're deflating your mattress and you, you can smell that it's gone mouldy inside. So this thing, um, well, you know, 85 grams, recharge yeah. using, mattresses, uh, LED recharge, uh, sorry, not LED recharge, um, USB recharge. Hmm, I don't know. Hmm. Um, well, the corollary to that, I've been using a Thermarest version of that, which runs off two AAAs and it works a treat. It's just right. fine. Um, I would do have to say we had two, and one of them finally died, but it got used quite a lot, and it, it just kept on working for a long time. One of them still works, and it's, oh, it must be eight years old now, and it's been used a lot. So, yeah, they work pretty well. I think it's a, a way better idea for all the reasons that Sam was mentioning. Is blowing into that, I mean, just blowing in, you're bound to suck some of that back into your lungs, and that could be really bad and does bad things to your mattress. and. Yeah, it gets really funky. No thanks. 
Um, are, are, they, are, are they reversible where you can actually pull the air out too? So you can make yeah. Yeah, they're, they're yeah. the ones. They're good. Yeah, it's the one I'm talking about is great. It's much better than the one I've got, which is only one way. Mm. Are they expensive, Grant? Uh, the Thermarest one is 49 bucks Canadian, so 40 bucks US, so not cheap. Um, the one Sam's talking about, I don't know. Um, I saw it on special the other day for 35 pounds. So what's that about? 42 US. Yeah. Not cheap, yeah, but if you're but doing a long trip, it's... It's another thing to carry, for. isn't it? Well, It's another yeah, thing to carry, but it's pretty for. small. But, mm. I mean, the other method was always the a lot of the air mattresses would come with a, a stuff sack that had a valve built into it yeah. that you fill up, you open it up and you fill it up and you heck with air and you stick it on and then you squeeze the air out. I've been there, done that. Um, the pump's way better. I totally agree with you. God, it used to drive me dotty having to do this. Oh, yeah, I ended up getting forever. rid of the sleeping mat because it was such a chore to do. Yep. Um, straight back to the old thermo rest that I can just open the, the nozzle and they can inflate themselves. Yeah, I can't sleep on a thermo rest anymore. My back just will not take it. Yeah, you and know that there are a lot thicker ones now, Grant. Oh, I know. I had a thick one. No, thanks. No, I've got a, um, a Q-Core by Big Agnes. Um, it's about four inches thick and it's full of down. It's warm. It's comfortable. I, yes, I have to use the pump to inflate it, but it's really good. And here's the, the, the real um, piece resistance of it. Susan takes it when we go hoteling. She uses it instead of the hotel mattress. It's better than the hotel mattress. Four inches. What's better that take, about 20, 30 mattress. minutes to pump up? No, just set the pump on. It, it takes, oh, easily five minutes, maybe seven or eight minutes. Wow. Uh, so it's a while. But um, she loves it and will not go anywhere without it. She takes the little mattress, which is, I don't know, eight inches by four or five inches in diameter, um, and the pump, and she's good. Wow. Yeah, so she you make good stuff. Yeah, they do. They oh. do. Yeah. Yeah. Can't you yeah. get the, the huge bed all to yourself and um, somebody has to sleep on the floor then? No, she's not on the floor. She's on top of the mattress, trust me. <laughs> <laughs> she goes full boat. <laughs> One of the be things... in a strange bed is I'm going to be comfortable, she says. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that I bought myself last year that was kind of an upgrade is I was due for a new headlamp. Um so I have a battery. I think they usually use two or three little AAA batteries for a headlamp with the elastic band that goes around your head. And they're perfect for when you're setting things up at night, working, um, walking over to a bathroom or anything like that. They're really a good piece of kit. But the one that I bought last year actually didn't have just white light. It also had red, green, and blue light options mm -hmm. on it. So it's an LED. Mm. And the blue Blue light apparently is really good for reading maps and night reading because it's easier on your eyes. Um, and it works, apparently blue light works really well in foggy conditions. Green is supposed to be really good for night vision for outdoors and it doesn't attract bugs. So if you use that when you're crawling into your tent at night, hopefully fewer bugs follow you into the tent. Um, and then there's a red color on there and that's for attracting attention. I think as somebody mentioned earlier, maybe it was Grant, it's a nice backup or emergency option if you have an electrical issue on your bike to use it as a tail light. So, mm -hmm. I've, yeah, it, it's kind of a nice upgrade to have all of those features on that one headlamp. Michelle, 
what you've just said about the green and the blue and and so on that that sounds fantastic and i hadn't thought about the idea of using it as um an emergency tail light i have ended up riding in the dark with a um, a bus tail light and yeah the thought of having one of those that you can just tag on the back fantastic great multitasking mm-hmm. two uses rule again yeah. yes yep. and i found something that everybody who has a headlight should have a pair of these flashlight shoes you put this <laughs> gadget on your shoe so that you can walk around and see where you're walking. Does that sound like a good idea or what? Uh, well, <laughs> grandchildren have got those. <laughs> We're not talking about the blinky shoes, Brian. We're talking no, about, he's he's talking about a flashlight. I just, I just got this image of Grant hopping through a camping site with blinky shoes on. <laughs> yeah, I've got that. those listed under the category of, seriously? <laughs> wow. Yeah, so there are some strange gadgets out there. I didn't know you could get shoes with flashlights. That that's incredible. I'm definitely well, these, gonna... these go onto your current shoes. They're oh. just sort of strap onto your shoes. I haven't seen them. You have them, Michelle? No, I have not seen them. They oh. sound interesting. <laughs> Michelle, when you mentioned the headlamp, I, I know what, you, what you're saying with the headlamp is that it's so versatile mounted on your head. A lot of people will bring a flashlight, but a headlamp is far better than a flashlight. It's giving you the hands-free when you're Absolutely. when you're at a campsite. There's no doubt. And and you can get them so so small now. Like I think the one you're talking about, Michelle, you can put in your pocket. Yes. Yeah. It's small. It's probably no bigger than an egg. Yeah. Yeah. We use them all the time. You just have to be careful as to where you aim them while you're having dinner because we had dinner one night and I was illuminating the person sitting me opposite meal and my meal was in darkness. <laughs> yes, that's They are adjustable, surely. Yeah, I worked that out. Yeah, you stick your head up to talk to you and blind you. <laughs> yeah. Did I read somewhere that you can get those that are, are USB um, rechargeable now so rather than having tons of batteries? Yes, you so, can. And there's even a solar one. That's interesting. You must have to wear a hat with, with a torch. With a flashlight. <laughs> well, there's hats out there with the little flashlights attached to the, to the brim of the hat. If you don't want to wear one around your head. Mm-hmm. I don't know. There's, there's a gadget for everything. I think something that should be said and hasn't been said about all these cool gadgets is it's really easy to go down a rabbit hole and buy all kinds of really cool stuff. But... In reality, eh, not so much. Are you sure you really need it? Like flashlight shoes? Yeah. I don't know. Um, maybe, maybe not. Although I did find something. This is for Ted Simon fans and Sam. You can get an adjustable folding umbrella hat. Yep. <laughs> yep. How cool is yeah. that? And There's only twenty one ninety nine on Amazon. Is it, is I will it, share put something with you. On. There you are. Uh, you need to hear this. I will share something with you which I haven't shared with anyone outside of my close circle of friends before. My first husband imported umbrella hats. Oh, wow. And we had box upon box upon box of the bloody things because no one wanted to buy them. About 10 years later, you could not turn around in Australia with someone wearing a bloody umbrella hat. So So he made millions of dollars in the end. He did not. Oh. <laughs> they went to the tip, I reckon, those boxes of umbrella hats. But uh, so there you go. Yeah. Somebody went and picked them up after he threw them out and, uh, and made millions. 
Somebody obviously. They made millions, yeah. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> well, you know, right along with that, I, I saw this, um, there's this clamp that you put onto your baseball cap and on the clamp is a, is a spring pole that goes up about 12 inches and at the top of it is an oversized dragonfly. And as you move your head around, it flops around from side to side and it's supposed to, it's supposed to scare away the deer flies if you have deer flies in your area. Apparently it works, but I mean, there, you, you have to draw the line somewhere, don't you? I don't care if it works. I am not clamping a dragonfly on a spring on my hat and walking around in camp with that. Would you? You have to work out what's worse, looking like an idiot <laughs> or not being bitten by deer flies. Exactly. You have to tell I, you I, I, will, I will pay you for a photograph of you wearing one. Yes. <laughs> See, I don't need something like that to make me look like an idiot. I'm fine all by myself. <laughs> <laughs> to, to, just while we're on the subject of deer, um, a friend got in touch with me today and he said, um, while you're in the States, bring back some deer whistles. He's had one on, the, on his motorcycle for the last 15 years and because there are a lot of deer around in um, the southern UK now. And uh, he said, you know, he's, he sees them and, and they see him coming. They hear the whistle and they hear, see him come. They actually look up. Do people in the States and Canada, do you guys use deer whistles on your bikes? They have been completely debunked yeah. multiple times. Uh, yeah, we, we, call them, um, we call them shuru's over here, uh, little whistles, and um, you put them on the front of your bike, but you've got to have about six inches of free air behind them. Uh, to work at any sort of frequency. I've got to say, since I've had them on the bike, I haven't hit a kangaroo. But um, before he had them on the bike, he only hit one. So look, I I'm just, one. I'm yeah. just saying. Yeah. I yeah. just think they're one of those. Uh, yeah, yeah. A fool and his money. Very quickly yeah. parted. Yeah. yeah, there was a um, sheriff's department somewhere in the states where they had all kinds of issues with hitting deer um, because they were running, they're out in the country where there's lots of deer and they had all kinds of problems. And somebody said, try these deer whistles. They work great. So they tried them. They had half their cars outfitted with them and half the cars outfitted with them or half with and half without. And at the end of a couple of years, they said there was no difference. Yeah. Did not do a thing. Yeah. Complete waste of time. I believe it. Yeah, yeah. believe that. I, I don't I believe knew that. I was asking like, my question to the right people. I, I think it comes under the category of, Oh, I sure hope that works. That would be really cool if it did. And of course, there is no proof that it does. Just one thing while we're on on t yeah. on um, on general tips, um, I came across this the other day, and I thought actually this is quite a nice idea. Um, fire lighting. Now I know that people buy fire lighters from camping shops and things like this, and they're not particularly cheap. Um, and this tip was um, matches. Just put four together put a, a sheath of toilet paper around the outside of that, a quick bit of thread. And if you've got a candle, which I mean, Berger and I always travel with a candle, so this isn't a big deal. And um, then you just melt a bit of wax on, stick these back in your matchbox and that's it. And I tried it and they work really well. Mm. Nice. Simple, effective, cheap. Oh, I wanted to mention something that I used recently, um, pocket chainsaw. You know, these, it's just a little strip of chainsaw chain and a couple of handles on them. Seems really good if you're out in the woods and you need to cut a few things. Or in our case, we were removing trees that had fallen across the trail that we were trying to set out uh, and explore for the hum. And um, worked really well on small stuff. But then we came across something a little bigger and put a little more effort into it and it broke. Yeah, so, that's, what, that's what I was going to say. The, the, the ones I've seen are, are cheap and they don't last long at all. 
I've, I've tried no, them as well. Not they at all. tend to break really quickly. It's a nice idea, yep. but it's not, it's not chainsaw chain though, as I'm sure, you know, it's sort of like that, but it's not, um, yeah, not looks, it's kind of, kind of the idea. Yeah. Yeah. If you had real chainsaw chain, then you might have some success with it, but the ones you buy are made in China and they're just no good. Yeah. We were very disappointed. Yeah. You're better off with the, just the folding handsaw for, for things like that. No, I've got a better setup. I've got a, um, one of those, um, Sawzall battery powered Sawzall and an eight inch blade on it. I carry that now for setting out the hum. Cause I, we've done like six trees in one day and hand sawing. Yeah, no power saw. Yes. It works great, but not something I take on a big trip. You'll cut the handle off your toothbrush, but you'll take the Sawzall. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Priorities. Exactly. Yep. I have a friend who was camping uh, in Wyoming a couple of years ago and had a piece of Tyvek. Now, Tyvek is a brand, and I don't know how to describe it very well. It's it's kind of a thin plastic or fiberglass sheeting, something that is used to wrap around houses yeah, during building construction wrap. before they put... Yeah. yeah, building wrap. Thank you. And it's also used, I think, for envelopes, for like FedEx envelopes and things like that in the U.S. Oh, yeah. Um, but anyway, he had a sheet of it that was about three meters by three meters. And he said he used that thing for everything. It packs up super small. He used it as a tarp. He used it for um, bundling things, like to, to secure things if he needed to, to keep things dry, to use as like a, a work table under his bike if he was trying to, you know, prevent oil from getting someplace or to catch like screws and, and uh, bits and bobs falling off of the bike. But I thought that was really interesting. It packed super, super small and was such a useful piece of kit. And it was just a, a three meter square or 10 foot square piece of tie back. Hmm. I wonder nice. where you can get that from. Yeah, well, you just yeah. get it from the building supplies. Easy to get at building supplies. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Well, hang on you guys. Brian and Shirley have to go. They've, they've got an appointment. Yeah, sorry, folks. So we'll say goodbye we to do. you guys, and then we'll take our break, and then we'll come back and, and talk about South America. Just before I say goodbye, um, Jim, I won't be here next month either because I'm going to Iceland. Yay. Wow. Nice. Good for you. Yeah, I know. So what are you With doing in Iceland? We're going, our girlfriend and I are going to do a driving tour around Iceland for two weeks, and then I'm going to Frankfurt to catch up with some of our Wonderful German friends that we've met on the road over the last 15 years. Very so, nice. Brian will be here, but I just wanted to share with you that uh, yeah. it's a girl trip. Uh, <laughs> Shirley, can I you not check in, go. you know, while, while you're on the trip? Um, unfortunately, at the time that you're going to be recording next month, I will be in the air on my way to Copenhagen for the flight to oh, Reykjavik. So I won't, unfortunately. I've already checked it out. Um, uh, we'll hear about Iceland then when you get back. I take it. Yeah, yeah. I take it someone Louise out of my head. <laughs> I keep saying to Brian, that doesn't actually end well. No, that's a, But that's... we do get to have sex with Brad Pitt. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> but thanks, guys. You have a good one and um, we'll catch you later. I'll speak Thank to you, you in a couple of months when I'm back from Iceland. Just saying. Very good. Bye. Thank you, Brian. We'll Thank you, Shirley. You. Have fun. Yes, we will miss you, Cheers. but we'll, we'll hear about Iceland when you get back. Oh, I will bore you to tears. Don't you worry about that. Actually. I look forward to it. <laughs> Cheers, everyone. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. Bye. Okay. Well, um, let's let's uh, take our break. Did, did we miss anything? Did you guys have any, any other bizarre um, camping gear that you wanted to talk about? 
nothing too exciting. I did see one thing that was sort of like, really? Uh, in the category, uh, multi-tool axe head. Looks really cool. It's got all kinds of cutouts and it's really, really, I mean, to the gadget guy, it's amazing. The Klax multi-tool axe head. But it's $235 and you wow. still have to supply your own stick. Uh, oh, it's mm. the one that you have to carve a stick for and you put it in. The, the one thing I had, yeah. I thought about with that, I've never tried one of those, but I always, I always think about if you hit on an angle, is that not going to twist on you on, on the stick? Cause I think the pictures I've seen are a round stick stuck into it. Yeah. Whatever stick. Well, most sticks out in the woods are round, aren't they? They're not nicely <laughs> oval. I mean, you cut it round, you know, you carve, yeah. it, you carve it tapered to go in. It just uh, seems like you'd have to carve it. You know, yeah, but you'd have to use it for doing the carving. I don't know. And, and $235? That's the thing. Don't, don't you guys find that with everything now as far as the camping stuff? I mean, you, you there's really high-end stuff, there's no doubt. But there's yeah. so, it's so expensive. Like some of the, the top gear that you look at is, to me, just, you know, it's just too far out there. I, I have a real problem with this because, yeah, you're right. Prices of, of stuff, unless you're buying them from China, um, mm. tend to be really expensive. But I keep thinking about all the, the R&D that's gone into making these things and people who are sticking their necks out with new products and all of the marketing and costs that they've got, et cetera, et cetera, all of the work trying to get them into retail outlets and so on. When you take all of that into account, they're probably not that expensive. But you've got to really want to buy one of these things to pay out that sort of money, haven't you? Yeah. Well, I, I think, think if you shop at that level, though, if you think about shop, and I, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, of course, there, there's definitely a lot of money spent. And the, and the products are probably very good. They've got carbon fiber and, and incredible fabrics and things like that. But if you shop at that level, you, you could be spending $10,000 on camping gear. Like, like it makes it almost like an elitist thing. Yeah, it's definitely a different level. I think that the hard part is like, you can buy really good quality stuff. You can buy made in China stuff. And the trick is to find stuff in between. It's still good quality. It's good enough and it will last long enough, but it's not ridiculously expensive and it's not junk. Like I, I was given a couple of Swiss army knife multi-tool things in South Africa once. They were both such absolute total rubbish that it was a waste of time. The, the cardboard box they came in was better made. It was ridiculous. They were so crap. You know, why do people even bother making that kind of junk? Yeah. So you, it's the trick is to get that good balance of stuff. And I think, um, I know when we set off on our trip way back in 87, we were thinking, oh, the tent's got to last for three years and around the world and all that. So we got a really, really good quality one and it was a North Face and North Face said, we'll put a heavy duty floor on it for you and it's only 50 bucks or something. Oh, that sounds cool. The, the mosquito netting in it disintegrated long before the floor did. It was a waste of money and waste of time, waste of weight. You know, you got to think really carefully about what's good enough that it'll do the job, but it's not junk. So it's a balance and you got to got to really work hard on that. I think there's also quite a big difference between doing an overland, a long-term um, overlanding, you know, transcontinental overlanding trip um, versus a month, let's say, on the road in a country close to the home. This axe head that you were talking about just now, I was just, I was thinking when you were talking about it, hmm, even with today's fuel prices, that's a lot of miles. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. the trade-off, isn't it? That the mm. investment, you know, every dollar that you spend on a piece of kit should be something that you decide on, you know, with, with um, 
a lot of thought because those dollars reduce the number of miles then that maybe you're able to travel if you've got a limited budget. Yeah. And one thing that I often think of when it comes to that sort of stuff is, is if I break it or lose it, how much is it going to hurt? You know, you, you buy one of these, these axes that, you know, are, are two or $300 and you lose it. That's a major loss. Whereas if you take a cheap one, it's not that big of a deal. Like you lose it. Okay. Well, you know, that's too bad. And the other thing you find is often, I think people are buying some very high-end gear, like an axe, for instance, like there seems to be a big craze for axes now of all types without any sort of skills. Like if you, you know, if you don't have any yeah. skills, why buy a top of the line axe? You'd just buy a cheap one and you know, learn how to use it sort of thing. Because it's cool. Well, okay. There's that. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's true. And that works sometimes, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And I think of motorcycle travel, an axe head, how much are you actually going to use it? Like, it depends. Once? Yeah, it depends on your style of camping, really. I mean, and that's, yeah, you've, yeah you've, you've got to consider that. I don't know. I'm, I mean, if I had my way, I'd try out every piece of camping gear there is. <laughs> I think it'd be great <laughs> to just try out everything and just see what it's like. But um, yeah. Yeah, but that gets a little expensive. Well, that's that's the barrier right there for me. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I, mean, I walk into a camping store and wow, there's all this cool stuff. And oh, I was just looking for something the other day and, and oh, wow, MEC has so much good stuff, but mm. I don't need it, don't need it, don't need it, don't need it, don't need it. Can't imagine using it, can't carry it, it's too heavy, too expensive. And I'll take one of those. And that was it. You know, there's just so much good stuff. You've got to really, really be careful that you're not just getting suckered into the, ooh, it's cool and they make it, so I must need it, thinking. Yeah. I think a camping store is, is perfect for me for inspiration. I have to know, mm -hmm. I have to commit to not buying a bunch of stuff when I go in, <laughs> really think about it. But then yeah. if I can go out and look, you know, maybe at some forums that, you know, other travelers are selling stuff, maybe that's slightly used or find something on eBay that's similar, then mm -hmm. I'm using that trip to REI in the States as inspiration and I can go out and find something that maybe is similar or works just as good. Yeah. Well, okay, so um, let's let's leave the, the camping thing, take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about South America. So this episode is supported by freshtracks.co.uk. Freshtracks has been around since the 90s. They work with companies to uh, or groups to inspire, motivate, challenge, and build communication skills through team building exercises. So um, I'm sure everyone knows what team building exercises are. They're those fun, cool things that you get to do with a, with a company. Actually, I, I, I mentioned before when we talked about this, I mentioned that I had, I have done them before. I actually haven't been on one with a company. I've been on the training side or the, or the uh, facilitating side of helping them, you know, with um, whatever wilderness activity it was, but they were always fun. That was always good. Anyway, they work with a, a bunch of companies like Mars, Pfizer, Yahoo, Comic Relief. The company is freshtracks.co.uk. And of course, mention Adventure Rider Radio if you are contacting them to um, to check out what they do. Now, for our part two, things that surprise you most about traveling in South America. Now, it's a shame that we don't have Shirley and Brian here, and I, and I didn't realize that when we got going here. But it's a popular route, South America, for motorcyclists. With um, there's just so much to see and experience. I, I was thinking like with culture, language, but also mountains, jungle, ocean desert, uh, like all kinds of riding difficulties. There's a lot there. And and what we're talking about here is what surprised you most traveling about South America. And hopefully you guys will have some things that um, that maybe aren't so mainstream. Michelle, I, I was thinking we'd start with you. If you if you had to talk about something or, or think of think of the thing that you would probably talk about the most that is surprising 
with South America. What is that? I think it was, it surprised me. And I, I think I talk about it quite a bit when discussing it with other travelers who are thinking about heading south. I was amazed how every country had a new version of Spanish. And I thought there was only one Spanish language. Mm. But I learned very quickly that every country was very, and it's, I know that sounds like I'm, cracking a joke, but I I promise I'm not. I remember when I crossed Mexico and spent three months riding through Mexico, there were road signs along the sides of the roads. And so after a while, you you translate and you figure out what they are and you're learning more words and adding things to your vocabulary. So I would see a sign that would say um, basically not to litter, don't litter, but it would use a word, a verb like tirar. T-I-R-A-R. And then I'd go to the next country and they would use the verb arohar. And the next country would use the word otar. And it's something similar in English that we would say like, don't litter, uh, don't throw trash out here, don't drop waste here. But just the mixture of words at each country, I found, you know, every sentence or the phrases they used were very different. Now that's, and, that's road signs, but is it in, in conversation as well? Very much in conversation Mm -hmm. and the accents as well. Oh, yes. Every country. Yeah, I was amazed. I got got to the border from, I think I crossed into Mexico or out of Mexico into Belize. And of course, that's not Spanish speaking, but then into Guatemala. And I arrived at the Guatemala border after having spent three months speaking Spanish in Mexico. And honestly, I wasn't sure I was going to be able to get in. I didn't think that I spoke well enough Spanish to actually get the paperwork filled out. I didn't know where to go. Nobody could understand me. So it was, it was deflating because, you know, here I thought, oh, my Spanish is getting pretty good. I, I can ask for things. I can have conversations. But when I got to a new country, really felt like I was starting over in every country in Central America. And for the most part, I would say the northern half of South America every border felt like a different version of Spanish. They, they have different accents, I suppose like dialects that we have in our own countries. Mm. Uh, so it was, it was amazing to me that it was that different. Did you yeah, find it the same experience? Um, I did. I think really I found that after about a week in each country, I just had to develop that ear for it and really have to ask the speaker to slow down. Mas despacio por favor was my, best sentence that I could say, which means more slowly, please. And so they would repeat things. And as long as my brain had enough time, you know, an extra millisecond or two to process whatever they were saying, then, then I could get through it. But yeah, it was, it was a learning process all the way and lots of fun, just another layer of the experience. Yeah. I had the same experience exactly um, going the same way. And my Spanish was never very good because unfortunately Susan's Spanish was excellent. She spent a couple of years in Colombia as a child and learned Spanish there. And then she took six years of it in school and lived on the Mexican border for years in the US and so forth. So her Spanish was very, very good. She sounds like a native. Uh, Her vocabulary is a little shy, but that's to be expected because she doesn't use it that much. Um, And my Spanish I learned in Mexico, probably same as um, Michelle did, got to Guatemala, nope, don't understand a word of it, got to Colombia and Susan said, oh, they speak perfect Spanish. <laughs> yeah, they, that's because that's what you learned in the first place. <laughs> but I couldn't understand a word of it. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's very much what you're used to. And you do have to take the time to get a, a good ear and, and learn how it's different. But it's definitely not something that you expect. And I know when we went to Spain, 
I was lost again. Like, what are they saying? It's totally different. <laughs> totally different. In fact, I remember we were in Mexico at a uh, camping thing where they had some cabins and things. And um, we'd gotten friendly with the owners of the place, and you know, very friendly, and that things were fine. And uh, we saw a couple of guys, and we heard them speaking Spanish. And to my ear, it was very strange Spanish. And we asked them, where, where are those two guys from? He says, oh, they're gringos, you know, from America. Really? And then we ended up talking to them. No, they're from Spain. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yeah, very different, very different flavors of Spanish. Well, Grant, how about you? What what stands what else out? Did I find? Mm-hmm. Um, it's colder than you think. You know, I think oh, of South America as being hot. Um, well, maybe in Colombia and at the sea level, yeah. But everywhere else, there's either mountains or you're a long way south. I've got a picture of us in Ushuaia at Christmas, where and, and realize that in South America, of course, Christmas is middle of summer. That's like July in the northern hemisphere. And the snow line is about 50 feet above where we were at sea level. You know, it, it's darn cold. And everybody that was there was wearing heavy jackets, wearing all our riding gear. It's freezing. And you got to go a long way at sea level before it gets down to a, a re, or up to a decent temperature. So you have to be prepared to carry more warm weather or cold weather gear. I should say, I shouldn't call it warm weather, more warm gear for cold weather. Um, but one of the things that I think it's always important is don't take too much of that kind of stuff because you can always buy a nice locally made sweater when you need it or a jumper, as the Australians would say. I've got to get that in for Brian and Shirley. Um, even Buenos Aires can get down close to freezing in the winter. So, And that's not something I would ever, ever have thought. Buenos Aires freezing? Are you kidding? Not possible. But yeah, definitely a, a serious thing to think about. It really other- caused us to um, grant and... Um, there were two pieces of equipment that I would have loved to have had in South America, and that's heated grips and a heated waistcoat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah we did have the electric up. vests, and that was absolutely critical. We literally won't go anywhere. Um, well, if it's 40 degrees out, we're going for the day. We won't take the electric vests. But otherwise, the electric vests come with us always. I wound up buying a second sleeping bag to lay over my feet which is ridiculous and very luxurious, but my sleeping bag was not keeping up. And that was the entirety of Chile and Argentina, which are very long countries. They extend very far south. But yeah, I carried two sleeping bags for both of those countries because I just couldn't keep warm enough with just the one. And it was, I think, a 10 degree, well, positive 10 degree Fahrenheit bag, which is actually like a minus 10, minus six, something like that Celsius. And it wasn't enough. Yeah, yeah. The one thing that people don't realize about those ratings, though, is that that rating that they advertise 99% of the time is a survival rating <laughs> as opposed to a comfort yeah. rating. A comfort. That's yeah. right. Serious. That's that's yeah. how they advertise them. It's it's sur- you will survive in this. You will not necessarily be comfortable. So when you're looking at sleeping bag ratings, it's, you know, it's a bit of a pet peeve of mine because I used to sell sleeping bags way, way, way back when. And I would tell customers that this sleeping bag is rated at 20 Fahrenheit, for instance, was a common one. And I can tell you, I've got one of them and I'm cold at 40 Fahrenheit. This is in the days when in Canada it was all Fahrenheit. Um, yeah, those are survival ratings, not comfort ratings. 
Mm. Well, I didn't think I was going to survive, so I got a second yeah. bag. <laughs> Good on you. Well, you did survive, so it was a survival rating. <laughs> there we go. I think one of the things that surprises people uh, about uh, the temperatures in South America is not the uh, not only the altitude. Um, Berger and I um, travel from Buenos Aires to Ushuaia and then across to the West Coast and up to Colombia. So I can't make any comments about um, the East Coast. But up the, the West Coast, a lot of the, the temperature situation is down to the Humboldt current. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very cold current. It's slow moving and it's really deep. So this keeps the, the coast from Ecuador right the way down to um, the tip of South America um, really chilled. So even down at sea level, you can be um, really quite cold. Yeah, yeah. we were wearing full riding gear all the way up the West Coast, all the way. Um, never needed it, never needed to do, think, never, need, never felt like we were too warm ever come to think of it and then of course a lot of it is um, there's lots of altitude so in peru ecuador you hit some altitude quickly and the temperature drops precipitously yep so yep it's colder than you think yeah that's actually one of the things that i was going to say to grant was just how high the altitude was mm. everywhere From the time we crossed into ecuador for sure um, all the way through into Bolivia, I was amazed how many days we were above 10,000 feet of altitude, 10,000 feet elevation for weeks on end. It was something like two or three months. So just much longer than you think. You're, you're Even when you're coming out of the Andes, you're kind of going up and down. But for extended periods of times in uh, Bolivia and Peru, we were up in plains so we weren't up in the mountains but we were on high altitude plains so we were still at something like 10,000 feet it was amazing yeah a lot of people don't don't realize that dealing with altitude like that on a motorcycle especially can be a big problem you can in peru you can go from sea level to 10,000 feet in about six hours yep now Mm -hmm. that can really knock you on your feet um the guy i was riding with at one point he was telling me a story um, he did exactly that, got up to 10,000 feet in Bolivia and completely, totally lost it. He was, he fell off his bike. He was lying at the side of the road. Some locals picked him up and took him in. And they said, all I remember is waking up and there was this person was chanting over me and waving sticks around and there was funny smells and there was, it was really weird. And I couldn't figure out what was going on. And then he passed out again. And then the next morning he woke up and he just felt like it was just, he said he couldn't believe how bad he felt. Um, but the people got him going and said, go down, go down, go down, um, which he did. But uh, altitude is not something to be messed with. It's, and you really have to remember this on a bike. You know, climbers have a, a mantra of climb high and sleep low. In other words, you climb up a bit and then you go back down a ways and sleep. But on a motorcycle, we don't have that because it's so easy to get serious altitude. So you've got to really work your way up to it slowly. And if you have any symptoms at all, go down and do it, go down quickly because it can very quickly get very dangerous and people die of it on a regular basis. Sam, how about you? What do you have that um, that really stands out for you for South America? I've actually got quite a lot because South America surprised me in, in many ways. Um, one of the first, and, and this is sort of a fairly random, but um, it was one of the, the thoughts that popped into my mind first. 
And that is how disgusting Yerba Mate is. Now, I know there are real fans of this, but to me, it tasted like drinking liquid tobacco. Oh, it was gross. I yep. bug it, loved it. Um, and But we, we did love the, the friendly sharing nature of it. And I do wonder if COVID has killed that off. Now, for those who don't know, um, Yerba Mate is um, a herb tea and it's considered to have real health boosts. It's made from the leaves of the, the Flex Paraguayensis plant. And I, I, I had to separate that out because I can't pronounce it in one kind of rubbish. Um, and it does have quite a high level of, ha- of caffeine in it, but not quite as high as, co- as um, coffee does. But it, um, there's something about it that encourages dopamine, which is what um, our, our, makes our bodies feel good. So there's this, you know, there's all sorts of good reasons for drinking it. And the, the fun side of it, it's um, traditionally served in a sort of hollowed out hard shell gourd, which is about the size of a, a large fist. And some of them are plain um, and they look a little bit like um, gourd shaped coconut um, shell. And some of them are just highly decorated with um, filigree, inlaid silver and all sorts of things. They're just works of art. They're beautiful. Now, the mate is brewed in the gourd with hot water for a few minutes. And if I don't come back to that, um, remind me in a second. Um, It's then drunk through a communal straw, which has a filter on the end, which goes down into the mate, into the the liquid mesh that's in the the bottom of, of the gourd. Um, I'm saying communal because it's passed around between a group of friends. So you all use the same straw, but it's not only friends, but it can be with friends just made. And we we just really liked the the friendly and welcoming nature of this. There is there is a, um, a few side effects of it. It does give you a bit of a kick. And um, if you're constipated, then it can be a real help, um, which is very relevant in Argentina when there are hardly any vegetables around. <laughs> but I mean, would I want to carry on doing this mouth-to-mouthing the straw in times of COVID? I'm guessing um, that it probably doesn't happen anymore, which is really sad because right the way through many of the, the countries in South America, this is a, a very traditional thing. Now, from a motorcycling thing, I, when I started researching why people said that it made them feel so good, that it was such a, a friendly thing, it's not only the dopamines, but it's got sapamins in it too, which have an anti-inflammatory effect, which is just great for long-distance motorcycle riders. So there we are. Isn't that a lovely surprise topic to choose? Oh, and the reason that I said come back was because when you're in Argentina, for example, most of the gas stations have um, hot water boilers so that people can just go in, they can just pull on the tap and fill up their mate gourd and off they go. But from the motorcycle traveller point of view, you can always make yourself a brew of tea or coffee. And Birgit and I um, travelled with a flask, you know, a thermos flask, and we would um, go in and fill that up. We were quite often camp by the, by the sides of um, the gas stations. That's something that's encouraged. Um, and the deal is that um, in the morning, well, before you leave, um, you fill up with gas from that station. And quite often you don't pay anything um, to camp there. So you can use their, their toilets. Sometimes they have showers and literally hot water in the morning for, for your breakfast and fill up with fuel and off you go. It's, it's, it's all such a sociable thing. And I'd be kind of sad to see it die. But it doesn't alter the fact that to me it tasted like liquid tobacco. <laughs> really disgusting. But the motivation is the buzz that you get. Yep. 
and I hated it as well, but Susan thought it was it was okay. A bit strong for her. She's not a really super strong tea drinker, but she thought it was all right. And we've got one of those. We actually bought one just so we'd have it. It's a nice little souvenir. Mm. They're pretty cool. What did you think, Michelle? I tried it and I, I actually liked it. I wouldn't say that I liked it well enough to continue the tradition at home. I know <laughs> that there are some travelers who actually uh, bought those gourds and metal straws and took them home. I remember running into a Swiss couple, friends that were traveling by motorcycle that uh, my boyfriend at the time and I first met in Mexico. And as happens in South America, you cross paths all of the time. It's amazing what a small world it is and how you run into each other just, you know, time after time after time over the course of a few months. And they were addicted to yerba mate and they would fill up their thermos as it sounds like you did with water instead of tea though, that they would take a yerba mate break. So they fully embraced that tradition and loved it. And I think they are continuing it at home in Switzerland all these years later. Mm. That, does, that doesn't surprise me, Michelle, but Birgit um, likes it too. And she bought her own gourd and her own straw and all of the rest of it. But um, yeah, liquid tobacco. Well, what's it made of? <laughs> what's in it? It is literally the herb. It's kind of crushed green leaves, isn't it? Mm. I mean, that, that's what I remember in so when you put it into the, the gourd, it actually kind of floats on top, uh, on top of the water. And so uh, you would put a handful or I don't, I mean, the amount is determined by the person's taste, but you put some of the crushed leaves into the pot or into the gourd, fill it up with hot water. And then rather than changing out the leaves, if you were passing it around kind of a handful of people standing together and sharing it, you just keep adding hot water to those same herbs. Mm-hmm. And so you would reuse them, you know, four or five bowls full of water and keep passing them around. So they must be pretty potent because they would last for that long. I thought it was kind of minty, kind of a combination of mint and sage and a lot of flavors. It's hard to describe, but you're not wrong, Sam. It kind of of the the wet tobacco thing, but yeah. Yeah. (laughs) What else do you have, Sam? Um, we were surprised by how easy wild camping was, um, but the same rules as, as everywhere else, well out of sight or in foresight, ask for permission and um, sleep habitually with one ear open. Um, because we'd been uh, traveling in Africa, there were several food things that surprised us um, quite a lot. And the first was how cheap um, really good quality meat was in Argentina. Absolutely tasty. Um, very very hard to come across um, vegetables other than tomatoes and onions um, in in Argentina. Not the same in in other countries. Um, I think, yeah. I mean, the wine in Argentina just absolutely incredible. Um, even wine that you buy in tetra packs, you know, the, the cardboard boxes or the the, the sort of um, wax coated boxes or whatever they are rather than a bottle in argentina you pay a dollar for um a, a large tetra pack of, of wine and it was always really really good we never in argentina um had a bad wine now here's a statistic for you argentina exports 
only 20% of the wine that it's produced, the rest of it gets drunk at home. Um, Exports in 2020 were 395 million litres. So you can see how much Argentinians and overlanders like their wine. (laughs) That's a lot of wine being drunk there. But um, I mean, you go, you go up into countries like Ecuador, and um, yeah, um, we had one or two tetra packs of wine up there that were just um, full on paint stripper. But you know, you pay for what you get in in other countries. Um, there were some nice wines in in Ecuador, lovely wines in Chile, um, and really not expensive. So yeah, the the wine surprised us. Another thing that surprised us was how cheap it was to eat out at lunchtime, a full meal at lunchtime rather than in the evening. Um, And usually it was about half the price of an evening meal, which of course isn't always convenient for motorcycle overlanding because you don't really want to be sitting down and um, eating a a full meal in the middle of the day when you've got the rest of the afternoon that you want to be travelling for. But um, if you're in one place or you haven't had a um, a proper meal for a while, then um, yeah, look out for menu del dia. You'd usually get a drink within the price and sometimes even a dessert. And um, I did some checking online when I was thinking about this. And now in um, quite a few of the countries in South America, up the West Coast, I don't know the East Coast, so I didn't check. um, You're paying around $9 for all of that food. So soup, the main course, dessert and a drink. And the portions were really big. So if you can, eat out at lunchtime. Yeah, so menu del dia. That was um, that was very good. Um, did did you guys notice how many time, how easy it was to come across chicken and rice in most of the countries? There's anything else? <laughs> in fact, that was on my list too. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. I was, I was amazed how many different ways you could eat and enjoy rice and beans and chicken for yep. two years, but it was all delicious. And some of that maybe was. Um, helped along by the fact that I was very hungry because when you're traveling and riding in different conditions, you're burning a lot of calories. You're out in cold weather and in wind and et cetera. And it always tasted good. Yeah, we'd always do the menu del dia. We'd, we'd make a point of this is the big meal of the day. And that means that we don't have to be very fussy for dinner. We just have something fairly light for dinner, which when you're in camp is, is a lot easier to deal with. Um, so it was always the menu del dia. And everywhere, Central America and South America, that's absolutely the way to go. Um, but it, like I said, it, it, it was 99% of the time it was chicken and rice plus a few other things. But the base was always chicken and rice. Something about um, chickens. I don't know whether you guys noticed this down on the coast in Peru. Um, there were lots of um, uh, chicken farms in the deserts. And we were quite surprised. I mean, it, you've got these rolling sand dunes and there's a chicken farm. What's all that about? And again, when I did some research later on after the trip, because you know, I, I jotted down questions like this in my journal and um, after the trip, then I would hunt them out and see what was going on. And um, the, I mentioned the Humboldt current earlier. Well, the Humboldt current is really low in salinity. So the wells that these places were sinking down into the desert sands um, were pulling up water right next door to the sea that was so low in salinity um, that it was considered to be absolutely fine for for chickens. Nothing else could be um, fed and bred there, but um, chickens could be. And that's one of the things that I love about travel, just these quirky things that pop up all of the time. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. 
What was you guys' um, favorite snack on the road in South America? It's hard to say. I know it was not the grasshoppers and crickets from Central <laughs> I America. If, I wonder if you're going to say that. <laughs> I think one of the things that really stood out to me, you know, was how many different kinds of corn there were. It was really surprising to me. Um, I think in Ecuador, I remember sitting down, we, we had the very wonderful treat of being able to stay with a local family for about a week. And the mother of the house cooked meals for us for lunch and dinner. And every meal had at least one kind of corn. Many meals would have two kinds of corn. And I remember her bringing, serving a bowl of soup, like a chicken soup for lunch one day. And she had bowls of popcorn next to your setting. And so the popcorn I think of as a snack, but it was something to put on top of your soup. And then it kind of became soggy and became part of the soup. Um, But one of the things that Ecuador served as like an appetizer was choclo. And each of the, so there's, I think I read somewhere 50 some species or in Ecuador and Peru. So -hmm. there's, there's the small purple grained ones that they make beverages out of. Uh, There are large grains like choclo and the choclo one kernel of corn is almost as big as like a ripe cherry they're enormous and so they would serve a small plate of those at the center of a table when you sat down as an appetizer and they were delicious they pop in your mouth very intense corn flavor um, very pale color almost white but i think my favorite snack and i picked it up a lot was probably in peru and it was toasted corn kernels with a little bit of oil. So it was almost like the corn kernels that you would have if you make popcorn and it doesn't pop. At home, we avoid those. But on the road, they've actually been fried a bit. And so the inside of them is softer. Mm -hmm. It's still crunchy, but it's chewable. Um, We have something similar in the U.S. called corn nuts. They're like Mm -hmm. a snack. Oh, right. Um, But so Peruvian corn, this fried corn snack was everywhere. And that was probably my favorite snack. And when you think about how many countries around the world, from Peru, I think was the original source country of um, maize or corn, how many countries in the world nowadays consider it to be one of the main staples? Interesting, isn't it? But you're right. Loved all of the different colours, everything from purples to reds to bright yellows and whites. And yeah, fantastic. Um, I think they're famous for potatoes, too. They are. Oh, absolutely. Um, each country has its um, its own special different types of potatoes. And this was something else that I made a note of in, in my journal. Guys, tell me if I'm talking too much, but we're talking food here and I'm always <laughs> passionate about food. And to me, one of the delights of travel is um, the different types of food that you can um, you can find along the way. And I love trying local foods. I don't know about you guys, but I'm getting hungry. Yeah. My favorite was flan. I love flan. Ah. Mm -hmm. So good. For those of you who don't know what flan is, it's a creamy caramel coated custard. Um, You get it in Spain as well, but oh, it's such a good dessert. And I've got a sweet tooth, big sweet tooth, several sweet tooth, in fact. And I just loved it. It was my favorite dessert. I'd have that everywhere, anytime, not a problem. You know, people have said to me when they've come up through South America, oh, the food was pretty boring. All we ate was chicken and rice and beans. And I'm just thinking, but hang on a minute. There's so much else out there. You've just got to go and try it. And if it looks weird, well, 
ask how to cook it and then try it. It's it's part of the, the joy of travel. And one of the things that surprised us a lot was coming from Africa, um, where we just didn't find locally made cheeses. In South America, we found them all over the place, in, not often in the supermarkets and so on, not even in the local, little local supermarkets, but very often in the markets. Um, and the, the cheeses would be um, about the size of a, a tea saucer and a couple of inches thick. And wow, fantastic. Sometimes goat, um, quite often, um, you know, cow milk cheese, uh, really, really tasty. Um, so that's something else to, to have a go. And of course, there's asados, which aren't a snack, but mm. what was your first experience with asados? Ours was interesting, to say the least. We ordered the asado because we've been told that was the thing to have. And it's basically barbecued meats. And we got served this big plate for just the two of us. And we looked at it, oh, boy, I don't know if I can eat all this. So we dutifully worked our way through it and did our best. And then the main course arrived, mm -hmm. which was twice as much and steaks and everything else. Oh, my Lord. And we said, Susan said, um, do you have any vegetables? And the waiter thought about it for a minute and he said, hmm, we have chicken. <laughs> that's, 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 good, right? <laughs> that's good yeah so but yeah as the asado if you're a meat lover wow the argentinians know how to do meat big time lots of it and it's relatively cheap and there's just so much of it and they take all the parts everything you can possibly eat and they cook it somehow or other and put spices on it and they just do a wonderful job it's amazing it is a carnival fest or a carne festival, I should oh, say. Is it <laughs> nicely put. Yeah. Yeah. A carnival. Well, other than food, <laughs> were there other any other things on your list, you guys? Um, Mamodium. That was a must. <laughs> so that was surprising how much you used it? Uh, let's just say, make sure you have Imodium at all times because street food is wonderful and eating local is great. And, but if you've got a, um, like I have a well-known delicate stomach and I enjoy loads of loads of the great local food and eating off the street vendors and stuff, but I was always very careful about what I ate. Um, something that I did not recognize, I was not going to take a chance that I just knew it was going to interfere with my internal bits um but yeah keep the emodium handy you just never know it's always handy to have and when you're looking for a restaurant if you see two restaurants and one's really busy and the other one's not so busy don't go to the not so busy one because you're gonna have some breathing room go to the busy one because it's safer yep. <laughs> the locals know yeah so even the emodium thing we still didn't get away from food <laughs> And it, and, it, and it just ended up bringing us right back into food again. So other than I had food. I do that. <laughs> other than food. Oh, other than um, food. I know one thing that Susan had a lot of trouble with was you've got to haggle. Everything you haggle for, even when you're going into a hotel, you haggle over the price. It's not, it's not rude. Um, they expect you to haggle. They think you're an idiot if you don't. And, of course, you'll make it harder for the next traveler to come along. It's, it's part of the fun and makes for a conversation and it's a little bit of a social lubricant. It's it's part of the way life is done. It's not boom, boom, here's the price, bang, yep, done, and you're out the door. No, you're supposed to expect it to have a little conversation 
Um, but well, how do you, you know, do that, Grant? Like, I mean, what, what do you do? So, so how do you do it? You you balk at it and say, "Oh, it's too much," and, and sort of turn to yeah. walk away, or how do you do? How do you do it? Well, you don't walk away until you don't get anywhere. But uh, basically, you say, "Oh, I don't think I can afford that. It sounds like a lot. Maybe I'll go look somewhere else." And they say, "Oh, I can do. I think I can do a little bit better, just for you, you know." And then you go back and forth a few times, and um, and that's fine. You you can end up. Half the price, three quarters of the price, somewhere in there. It depends on how hard you want to work at it. Um, same when you're in the market, no matter what price they offer, you know, oh, I think you can do better. And you know that there's a gringo price. And the gringo price is double or triple what the locals end up with after they haggle. Um, so be prepared to haggle. It's just and make it part of the fun. You know, enjoy it. Enjoy the the interaction. It's a chance to improve your Spanish and work. Um, it's okay. And it is fun. I quite it enjoyed it. It can be really funny, really oh, funny. Yeah. And you can build such good relationships with with people in, in hotels and so on with doing that. It's, yeah, it's part of the culture. Enter into yeah. the spirit of it. Yeah. Um, I find, I know there's some people that say, oh, that's that's just plain rude. You shouldn't do that. You know, you make so much more money than they do. Yeah. Don't screw up the local economy by just paying whatever they ask because the next traveler to come along is going to get told double again because they they think you're, you'll pay it and you're just seen as being stupid you're being seen as a mark why would you do that be part of the local culture and that's why you're there is to be immersed in the culture and enjoy the people so do what they do you know, when in rome and all that stuff too right and you may actually find that you're really good at it yes <laughs> it's amazing how good you get at it are you good <laughs> at it Sam? um I'm not bad because I've got a good sense of humour and I can have a laugh and a joke. Um, Birgit does the I'm not paying that much stony look much better. And I have seen people quiver and quail in front of that look and the price shoot down <laughs> without a word been spoken. Uh-huh. Right. So she's a master. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, I, one thing I wanted to mention was... Um, Blockades. We had a recent little discussion on the hub, uh, actually on the on the traveler's blog, on the website, and um, he went through the blo- recent blockades about fuel prices and everything in Ecuador, and had a lot of trouble and things were a little dicey at one point. And he wrote about it and said, you know, they they felt very afraid, and some locals had told him, oh, don't go down that road; it's very dangerous. And basically said, oh, this was really bad, um, but not in a big, terrible way. You know, he was, I think he was quite realistic. He did have trouble. Um, I've been through the blockades in Ecuador myself, and it, it's a common method that the locals use to express anger at political and social and protests occur regularly. Um, it's something you expect. And and it's, for travelers, it's not a big deal. The, the real trick is to... Um, Interact with the locals, talk to them. They know you're not a local. They know that you're not the target. They know that there's nothing you can do to change what they're protesting about. And I always found them to be quite friendly, no problems. Just interact and talk and relax. It's going to take a while to get through. Sometimes we were allowed through like, oh, you know, traveler here, well, you know, it's fine. You know, we're protesting about this. You go blah, blah, blah for a couple of minutes and they open the gates and let you through. And that was fine. Um, one time we were there for several hours 
Um, they were not letting anybody through, like no way. But in the end, we were the first ones through. So it's okay. Um, but anyway, this guy had these problems and didn't really quite, I think, understand the uh, the procedure for dealing with it. And they just wanted to get through. And somebody said, oh, somebody tried to help him out and got him through. And they went through and it was fine. But he wrote about it. And this other guy came along and said, ah, you're trying to blow it all up and make yourself out to be a hero. And it's all BS. And I went through there and I had no trouble at all. And everybody was very friendly and it was completely safe. Well, yeah, the day you went through, there weren't any blockades. And that is a very, very different experience when you've got a few hundred people really stuff, burning fires, blockading the roads, stopping everybody from going through. It's a very different experience than sailing down the road with no problems. So I think you, you need to, um, how to put it, you need to take it all into context and understand what the situation is, how it's working, how you deal with it. And you always go back to your experience is different from somebody else's. You know, you can, some one person can go through a country and they loved it. Another person can go through a country and they hated it. And they went through a day apart through the same country. This happens. And a, a lot of it is your previous experience, where you've been, what news you listen to, who has told you what, and what your attitude is as you approach any situation. And we've talked about it at borders. You go in there and you're really friendly and you say hi and buenos dias, you know, shake their hand and all that kind of stuff. And it's going to be an interesting day as opposed to going in thinking you're going to get ripped off you're going to have different experiences and these kind of things like the blockades are the same kind of deal. A lot of it is how you approach it. I think that's sound advice. Keep in mind. Sound yeah. advice. I was thinking there was another thing that were kind of related to that, that I was reading about recently. Um, Peter forward, uh, for those who don't know, Peter and Kay forward did every country in the world on a box stock Harley electric glide. Think about that for a minute. Okay, so here's Peter and Kay, their first visit to Africa. They're in Morocco, and they thought it was horrible. It was backward. It was a pain in the ass to deal with customs and blah, blah, blah. They, they really didn't think much of Morocco. A year or something later, they had done all of Africa, and they came back to Morocco, and they said, oh, what a wonderful, well-organized, easy-to-travel place. It's amazing. We love it. Perspective. Perspective. It's yeah. all perspective and and, and attitude. Mm -hmm. How you approach it. This is going to be interesting, or however you go into it is how it's going to be. You decide. So true. Yep. Well, we've been at this for a while now. Why don't we go into plugs? And I guess we're going to go through them fairly quickly because we don't have Shirley and Brian here. So, Jim. Yes. Could I do just one more? Oh, absolutely. Go ahead. Um, it's not necessarily something that surprised us, but it was something that delighted us. And that is the Plaza de Armas. Now, most towns in South America, most larger towns have a square in the middle of the town or somewhere mm -hmm. near um, called the Plaza de Armas, which its literal, tran literal translation is weapon square. But they were more of a parade ground. And often um, they're, they're 
they've got parks in the middle of the square and their tree lines and hotels and bars and really interesting old buildings and they're quite beautiful and they're really interesting places to head of an evening um, to people watch um, in Latin America promenading of an evening time they're great and you can walk there and you can feel um, absolutely at home and, and just fascinated by what um, you see but the other reason that I'm mentioning that is because if you're traveling with somebody else traffic in, in many of the towns can be really nuts they're excellent meeting up points if we get separated head for the plaza de armas i'll see you there because um, everybody knows where the plaza de armas is sorry i had to pop that in that's a wonderful yep, memory thank you yeah i always found those things to be just an amazing place in the evening you know it's it's been a hot long hot hard day and you go down there after dark just as just as sun's going down and it's a great place to, to eat and, as you say, watch the locals. And it's really cool. Yeah. It's definitely a different way of thinking from what we're used to of, you know, dinner is at six or something like that. And then you go to bed or back to your hotel or whatever. But no, you, you come out at dark. That's when it gets interesting in the right place. You don't want to go down to the certain parts of town that you might not want to go to. Okay, so um, let's move into plugs. Let's start with Michelle. Michelle, Michelle, what do you have for plugs today? I have uh, just a reminder for everybody that the um, Rev Sisters Motorcycle Film Festival is going to be available online starting the last weekend in October, but it's not too early to get your tickets. So if you go to RevSisters.com, you can get free tickets now. Uh, we also have a paid version for extended viewing but free tickets um, always, of course, for the first weekend. But we're just doing one online motorcycle film festival this year. We've done three in past years, but we're scaling back, really trying to focus on shifting some of our content to interviewing filmmakers, subjects, things like that. But we're excited. We've got over 12 hours of films already submitted. We have selected some. We're beginning um, that process, so... It's exciting, and we, we hope to have you join us. Wow, very nice. And what's the website for that? Revsisters.com. Revsisters.com. Okay, and you're going to give us a link. We'll put that in the show notes, of course. Very nice, exciting, and always nice to get something for free. Yes, thank but you, said, you. You said you have, a, there's a, like, if you want to take more time to watch, is that what it is? So if you want longer than the weekend, there's a paid version? Right. So our festivals are online. Anybody from around the world can watch them. You can sign in and you watch the films at your leisure. So they're not, they're not scheduled. It's kind of self-guided and you actually go in and start the films. You can stop and continue them later if you need to take a break. Don't finish a two-hour film in one sitting. No problem. But uh, with 12 to 15 hours worth of films being shown in the festival, not everybody can dedicate three or four days in our free weekend to finish all of the films. So we do have an extended viewing pass available if you're interested in spreading those out over the course of two weeks instead of trying to squeeze all that viewing time into one weekend. Yeah, that's very cool. You make it like a, a dinner time or an evening thing or something yeah. like that and pick a movie and watch it. Yeah, I like that. Great. Nice. Okay. Can I just make a comment on, on yeah. the, the film festival? Um, I was lucky enough to be invited to do the judging for two, um, two of the festivals. And I was absolutely enthralled by the range of movies 
um, that were being shown. The talent, um, absolutely incredible. And just covering just about every single spectrum of motorcycling that you can possibly think of. There were yeah. things that I'd never heard of that these films were talking about. And I just sat there completely enthralled. So, um, yeah, make a point of, of getting um, getting in and watching the, the festival. You are going to be blown away by what you see. Thank you, Sam. And we were the lucky ones by having you uh, help us judge and score films. We so appreciate it. Stop blowing smoke, Michelle. I'm not. It's true. (laughs) (laughs) No, it was good fun. Very nice. Fascinating. Grant, what have you got for a plug? We've got a few events coming up. Um, Everybody's going to miss this one. It's too bad. August 12 to 15 is Newfoundland. But I don't think this will be out before then. It's too late to get there anyway. But you missed it. Too bad. Plan on next year. But we do have Switzerland, August 18 to 21. Romania, August 26 to 28. Uh, France, September 16 18. And Germany, 29 October. And South Africa, still November 3. So there's five HU meetings left this wor- this month, this year, 2022. And we are working on 2023 dates right now. But there's still a chance to get to some if you're in Europe or Southern Africa. Very nice. All available at horizonsunlimited.com forward slash events, I believe. You got it. Very good. Sam, what do you have? I'd like to do a quick shout out first, if I may. Um, yesterday, I had a, a really nice conversation with a Canadian guy called Lindsay Friesen. Um Lindsay met Birgit and I, or we met um, Lindsay in Antigua, in Guatemala. Lindsay was heading south um, through South uh, Central America and heading down to South America on his KLR 650. And um, we spent a couple of days bumbling around together and got on really well. Have not heard hide nor hair of him since 1998. So big wow. smile conversation yesterday and a catch up. And Lindsay, it's great to hear you're still motorcycle riding. And it was fantastic to hear about how your trip ended up. So, yeah, superb. Um, friends of the road. Um, felt like yesterday. Really nice. So cool. So how, how did you bump into each other again? Um, he saw my name pop up on Skype. Wow. And just pinged me a message and I thought, good grief, I know that name and got the old photos out and I've got a really faded photograph of the three of us sitting on our motorcycles outside um, the little hostel that we were staying in. And um, yeah, so no, it's very cool. Very yeah, cool. That's pretty neat. Um, okay, plug. Well, it has to be um, my trip to the USA because like I said earlier, I'm just buzzing now. Um, and please, if you're listening in, do t- uh, check the show notes for the links and details. And by the time Raw is out, I sh- I'll probably just just be rolling um, in the States. And um, well, of course, you can imagine the grin on my face to be out riding and exploring and meeting people again. And of course, um, sharing tales of the road and, and travel tips. So um, the schedule is um, Overland Expo Mountain West in Colorado, um, uh, August 26th to 28th in Loveland. Then Whaling Wayne weekend in Nelsonville, Ohio, September 7th to the 11th. Um, BMW Motorcycles of Detroit in Michigan. Um, that's September 14th. That's presentation evening. Then down to Frontline Eurosports of Salem in Virginia on September 23rd for presentation evening. And then... Um, 
the BMW Riders Association National Rally in Waynesville, North Carolina. That's just near um, Asheville. Um, that's uh, September 29th to October the 2nd. And I'm, I'm kind of honoured here because I've been chosen to headline the presenters. So um, that's, um, yeah, that's my, a first for me. And uh, the trip rounds off with Overland Expo East in Virginia, October the 7th to the 9th. And I really hope that I'm going to get have the chance to to link up with some Adventure Rider Radio listeners at the um, the events. It'll be fantastic to have the chance to do that. So, yeah, see you there, I hope. Very nice. And you'll be riding a, your own motorcycle, a different motorcycle that you haven't sat on for, what, two years? Three years? Two and a half Two years and a half. now. Yeah. yeah, thankfully she's been really well taken care of for me by Mark Carrera, my friend in uh, in Virginia. So he's been taking her out for little bimbles just to keep everything turning and um, that sort of thing. But um, yeah, it's going to be good to be back. Um, had to dig out the, the list of all the kit that I'd left with the bike because I'd forgotten. Oh yeah, to figure out what you have to take. I, I'm going to give you a little tip, Sam. Um, when you go to pick up your bike, just stay away from Mark's toolbox. <laughs> thank you very much jim you have a long memory <laughs> you know mark's, mark's going to be listening into this so i know he's you've just put a huge grin on his face we won't talk about the huge dent in his toolbox right he's probably moved oh, right, it. Then we will talk about it um what jim's referring to ladies and gentlemen is the fact that the first time i climbed on this motorcycle i dropped it and it fell against mark's toolbox you know one of these big standing toolboxes on wheels so there is a sand bike shaped dent in the side of this thing now much to my embarrassment <laughs> yes well it's uh it happens to everybody doesn't it Maybe not the toolbox, but the- yeah, who hasn't dropped the bike? Right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Anyway, thank you very much, everyone. Good afternoon here. I really enjoyed talking with you as always. And uh, I guess I'll talk to you next month. Yep. Sounds great. Cheers, everybody. Thanks, Jared. Okay. Thanks. See you later. Well, that wraps things up for this month's ARR Raw. And thank you to my co host, Sam Manicom, starting with Sam Manicom. He lives in the UK. He's got four books and audiobooks that follow his eight-year motorcycle journey around the world. His website, sam-manicom.com. Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks are from Australia. They also have published their own books on motorcycle travel. You can buy them wherever you get eBooks at their website, aussiesoverland.com.au. Michelle Lampfair is a moto traveler that also has a couple of great moto travel books, The Butterfly Route and Tips for Traveling Overland in Latin America. Both of those titles available on Amazon. As well, she has a motel for us motorcyclists and anyone else called The Chalet Motel. You can find out more about that at chaletmotelcuster.com. And of course, Grant Johnson is from Horizons Unlimited, which is the hub, literally, for our adventure motorcycling community. Horizons Unlimited has tons of up-to-date travel information, as well as a huge forum of dedicated travelers that connect you with other travelers. They also put on the hub meets around the world. You can see a worldwide list of hub meets at their website, horizonsunlimited.com. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you for listening. Join us again next time. Oh, and don't forget, if you want to get uh, your question or a topic suggestion in here, drop by our website. You can also look at the show notes. I have some more information in here. You can make comments on the show notes. AdventureRiderRadio.com. 